I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. If you're 21 or older, consume nicotine or tobacco and want to join the Black Buffalo herd, head over to blackbuffalo.com to learn more. You can order nicotine pouches online. They ship directly to most states or check out their store locator to purchase pouches at thousands of retail locations around the country. Black Buffalo Tobacco Alternative. Bold flavor, full pouches. Warning, this product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. Black Buffalo products are intended for adults age 21 and older who are consumers of nicotine or tobacco. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. This is the Meat Eater Podcast coming at you shirtless, severely bug-bitten, and in my case, underwearless. We hunt the Meat Eater Podcast. You can't predict anything. Okay, quick couple things. Lots of dudes. Brody, take a stab at how many dudes have written in to tell us about the guy eating squirrel brains. Dozens. Why do people like that story so much? I don't know. It's not even... I mean, obviously, it's a thing, eating them. But people get such a little chub off. It's like, people love it. Wildlife-related disease deaths. Yeah, and it's like, yeah. oh, it's an unconventional meal, and he yeah. got his comeuppance. Yeah. He got what he had coming. We knew it was going to happen eventually. Yeah. But yeah. you're also Stephen Rinella, the meat eater, the guy who eats all sorts of crazy stuff. So they think they're just assuming that you're out there munching down on squirrel brains. I don't like brains, man. Do, you know, you know that, uh, what's, that, what's that place in Missoula that has the brain dish? Yeah, the Brains ox. and eggs. Yeah, you go to the ox for brains and eggs. And, and, and it's like a big thing when you live there. And you get all drunk at night, and the bars close, and you go to the Ox, and you try to get your buddy from out of town to buy brains and eggs. And their thing is, if you order them, their slogan is, if you order them, you need them. (laughs) I've never, like, it's like, I do not enjoy eating the brains of anything. I've eaten cow, I've eaten a handful of different, I I don't like it. Don't like it, don't eat it. Kevin Murphy, world's greatest small game hunter doesn't go near squirrel brains because um, he grew up eating them. Did he eat them when we were around? His dog damn sure eats them. His dog likes them. Um, He doesn't eat them. And he doesn't eat them because it doesn't, if there is a risk, it doesn't warrant it. So it it, it turns out, here's a story that everybody's all hot and bothered about. Turns out that a guy um, some time ago, not like recently, 
years ago. A guy in Rochester, New York, gets the human variant of mad cow disease, which is pronounced, our, our guest Steve Kendrott will pronounce it for us. I've forgotten already. Kreutzfeldt Jakob? Yes. Right? Something like that. Kreutzfeldt Jakob disease. Yeah. Uh, which is, like I said, the human variant of mad cow disease. And it turns out that in his history, um, he, you know, he'd been a squirrel hunter. And in his history, he had enjoyed eating some squirrel brains. So it becomes this sort of like internet sensation how he absolutely died from eating squirrel brains. But now people are pointing out that every year in New York, 20 people die from variations of this disease. About On average, I think it's about one in one million people die from variations of this disease. And there's no direct reason to believe that that's what caused the thing. It was just a, it was a habit he had, and he happened to die from it. But now doctors at, that, that worked on this case are clarifying that there's no evidence that the man died of, as a result of anything he ate. But it just sounds cool. And I'm not even saying that, I'm not saying to run out and eat squirrel brains. It's just like funny the way like people kind of fall in love with the narrative. Correlation versus causation. Yeah, people fall in love with the narrative. And holy shit, did people email in about that. Give them like a heads up. Heads up, man. Um, guy wrote in. Anybody got anything to say about that? You guys, why, why aren't you guys interested in this? Because I don't need squirrel brains. Because it's not that brains. interesting, yeah. Dying of squirrel brains ain't interesting. No, it's like I'm not going to come in contact with them unless I myself make that situation happen. That's just not something. Yeah. yeah. Steve might serve them to you. Hey, I recently had my genetic test. You may. I got a freebie where you get your genetic lineage test, and I can't bring myself to open up the part about the diseases I'm probably going to get. Oh, yeah. You have to watch. Account- I was surprised by some stuff, man. I, used to, I was, like, dead sure that I was 25% Italian, like, like that, that 25% Sicilian. And it turned out that there's also that, 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 that I have some North African ancestry, which probably no doubt came from, because that's a short little boat ride, no doubt came from the Sicilian end. But anyways, I did this thing. That was surprising to me. The other part that was surprising to me is that there's like a thing where it's like, here's the problems you, you might have because your genetics, right? But you got to watch a counseling video before you can open the file. Hmm. And I don't have it in me to do it. It just says, hey, this is not a predetermined thing. Don't says, get hung you up on You might have, this. this is something to watch out for. And I don't even want to know. I want it to all be a surprise. So why 23 and me? Aren't there like a bunch of those services? Like is one more so credible? Is one more credible than the other? Don't know. Don't know. Yeah. Wouldn't the, the uh, things find that out. you're going to die from, like, I mean, everyone's got looking at the same things, right? Yeah, but what if they, I don't know. I got to look. They might have found something out. No, they don't do a, like, medical test, do myself. I can't bring myself to open it. <laughs> Yanni, uh, are you cool on squirrel brains? You're, um, like, not, not feeling interest? Not really. Uh, Why do we put your mic up to your top lip? Guy wrote in. We were talking about whether Missouri is in the South, and I'm saying, do you, I keep talking about this. Has anyone here familiar with the with the the 
a thing that was written some years ago called Equine Gothic. And it has to do with um, that's very difficult. Like the, the scholars of the American South who discuss Southern literature have often had a very difficult time just defining like what is Southern literature? What is the, liter- the, literary, the literature of the American South? And why are some writers from the South not considered Southern writers? Like Truman Capote, um, from the deep, born in the Deep South, but is not regarded as a Southern writer. His work isn't regarded as Southern literature. But then you look at um, someone like William Faulkner, obviously a Southern writer. Larry Brown, obviously a Southern writer. And the, the scholar did this thing called Equine Gothic, and he found that the real test isn't like, is the person from the South? Do they have a masculine voice? Do they identify with Southern issues? Do they have a reverence for history? Is their, liter- is their literature body like imbued with religious thinking and all these other markers of Southern literature? He came out and said, like, if the writer's work features dead mules, it's Southern literature. And goes in, and every person that we regard as being a Southern writer um, has a lot of dead mules. And so his thing is like, is there a dead mule in it? If there is, it's Southern literature. And Corm McCarthy, who's kind of you know South, but then also Southwest, has so many dead mules. And Corm like Cormac McCarthy's work is so littered with dead mules that he should be regarded as a Southern writer. But we we're talking about the South, and I was saying in my mind, the South is it like does it have an armadillo? And so. I thought Missouri, in my view, is the South because there's a lot of snakes, there's a lot of stuff that bites you, and I got scared by an armadillo while in Missouri. And the guy wrote in and he said, um, Missouri is a Midwest state. Here's how I know. Missourians refer to Coke as pop. If Missouri was in the South, they would say Coke to refer to all forms of carbonated beverages except beer. I was born in the South and lived in Missouri for a while, so I'm an expert. (laughs) (laughs) So he wanted to put that to bed. Another thing a lot of people wrote in about that I want to clarify. People are like, people who watch the new uh, Meteor season on Netflix watched our Fognac Island episodes, and they're like, whoa, why does this not include the material? Um, why does this not include the bear attack that became the meat tree one and two podcast episodes? The answer is we didn't film it. And the mantra is if it didn't happen on camera, it didn't happen. Um, there's no filming of it. We, we try to get different ways to like work it in, but it just isn't like substantiated. You know, it doesn't work to like talk in the episode. It doesn't work to like talk about how it happened because it just seems bullshitty. It's not a story you could have told quickly either. No. We even talked about bringing in, having someone animate it. Talked about it. Yeah, kicked it around. Up. But it just winds up being, there's just different ways to tell different stories. And also it involved the crew. Um, in, in TV land, do they t- did you study, Lauren, did you study TV making, camera making? What do you guys call it? <laughs> uh, when I went to school, it was radio television production. Do they talk about the fourth wall? Did you learn about I the fourth wall? I didn't learn about the fourth wall until much, much later. Okay, it was, it, That's interesting that you didn't, they didn't teach you that in school. Yeah, no. 
in TV, I and, don't recall that conversation. But yeah, in TV and film, there's a concept of the fourth wall. Might not Meaning, been in class. let's say you're watching a sitcom. Are you guys still, are you guys having a private conversation right now? I missed that day in class. We were, we were just finishing up. You were interrupting. No, you guys seemed like you were going into a private deal. Mm-mm. Okay, go ahead and share with everyone. No, we're done now. I was just wondering, it just seems like such an elemental wall? thing. That oh, you're wall, expressing disbelief that he yeah, doesn't know what the fourth yeah. wall is. So we were, I was thinking, well, he might have just been kayaking that day when they, just, when they covered that. Oh, class. yeah, because you were a big school yeah, skipper because you liked to kayak. Bailed on class. Uh, the fourth wall. Let's say you're watching a sitcom, and you're, you, the viewer at home, are watching a sitcom. You're watching, you're seeing three rooms of the, you're seeing three walls, right, of the home. Because the fourth wall. Of a room, yeah. Imagine like the living room, and then they walk into the kitchen, and you never see the wall that you're, the viewer is looking from. Yeah, that wall is missing, because that wall is cameras and crew and a director and lights, mm-hmm. right? So in, in TV, there's this thing like breaking the fourth wall. Breaking the fourth wall would be revealing revealing the fact that there's a thing being made. Like, you know, exposing the making of something. We, on occasion, <clears throat> on the show, I don't think we have any cases in season seven of breaking the fourth wall. We do it very judiciously, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Only when it really, really, it, it would like it'll be a great part of the story, you know, or the story needs it, you know, as, as to keep moving forward. You know, the first time the Latvian Eagle ever stepped foot, no, the second time, second shoot, you ever stepped foot into the woods with us, you broke the fourth wall by spotting up a grizzly bear that was coming into camp. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's like the breaking of the fourth wall. If someone had happened to be rolling a camera when we got attacked by the bear, that would have been a wonderful opportunity to break the fourth wall and have it be part of the show. Even if we had had audio of it. But it just didn't, it wasn't there, didn't work. Seems to me that breaking the fourth wall happens in hunting production quite a bit oftentimes there's no fourth wall right there's a fourth wall there's part of they disregard it yeah a lot of productions just disregard the rule about the fourth wall and the camera person even becomes a character right i don't like that it's about it's like it's it winds up being really postmodern, where it's like a lot of and i'm not saying it's in a negative way a lot of hunting shows are very postmodern in that it's a hunting show about making a hunting show Right. Yep. Which has postmodern, which in school we learned to call it POMO, which has (laughs) postmodern elements. What do you think about all that, Cal? I mean, I just think of all those brave pioneers in the hunting production world out there that 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 set out to do that. That are POMO without knowing it. Yep. Like I said, I don't have a problem with it, man. But it's just like a way, like a decision that we made about uh, uh, like a, a certain reverence for the fourth wall. I think and that was ca- in their pitch to Outdoor Sportsman's Group. That they're doing a POMO show? Yep. Now grasp this. <laughs> it's circular. Um, can I, you guys could care if I keep going on some of these clarifications? Please do. Western Nebraska. 
a lunch guy, like a lunch lady who's not a lunch lady, he's a lunch man. The guy in charge of a lunch program at a school fixes up some ground meat and <laughs> it's beef, but he cuts in some kangaroo meat that he bought from his regular purveyor at Cisco, like the giant Cisco truck. When I used to wash dishes at a summer camp near my home when I was 13, that summer camp's food all came from Cisco. Cisco sells kangaroo meat, kangaroo meat, inspected kangaroo meat. He buys some, cuts it in with beef, and makes some ground meat. Word gets out around school that he's been cutting in kangaroo meat with beef. His explanation is it's a good lean cut. Why not? Um, so people say, like, oh, that kangaroo meat made me sick, which people think is not, which <laughs> not true. They just didn't like the idea of it. And the guy gets fired from buying kangaroo meat from the damn supplier that I'm sure he didn't even, it's not even his choice who he uses. No, you can buy anything from Cisco. I mean, they distribute alligator. They distribute all sorts of crazy stuff or stuff that most folks would consider crazy. And this guy was just picking from a catalog, basically. Yeah, and he said, sure, send me some kangaroo meat. I'll grind it up and feed it to the kids. Probably sticking within his budget and being responsible with it. I'd like to have him on the show. Meanwhile, the basketball team has been screaming. <laughs> Dunking from the free throw line. Jeez, these kids are good. Where do these kids learn to jump? I'd like to taste kangaroo. I've had it. I can't remember what happened sometimes. sometimes like something I was doing through work, and someone sent me a big box. Not a big box, but a sampler box. It had like um, yak meat, kangaroo meat. All domestic stuff, though. You know, I don't know. The kangaroo, I don't know how they, I don't know where and how, I don't, I don't remember. What did it taste? I had ostrich in it. Do they raise kangaroo in the States? No. Mo- I don't think so. They can they ship produce it in, I guess they bring in red. red It'd be smart for us to find out more about stuff like this before we talk about it. We usually don't make that bad of a mistake. I shouldn't have brought it up. I just thought it was interesting. I mean, we could pull up, just pull up the Cisco menu online. I mean, Cisco trucks delivered a, everywhere. Everywhere. You know, some episodes ago, Giannis, we were in the middle of a conversation, and I tasked you with finding some real zingers from Twain, and you never came through on it. Oh, no, I had them pulled up. We just never had a chance to come back through. Well, I'm going to give you another chance here. <laughs> Please. Can you find out where the kangaroo meat comes from real quick? Yeah. Um, but I want to know that if I was in his position, <laughs> and I've been serving probably chicken and beef. <laughs> For as long as I've had that job, <laughs> and I kind of—I would call it a wild hair to be like, <laughs> it's a real wi- dude. I'm not trying to normalize it. It's a wild hair. Look at that. Does kangaroo? Okay. <laughs> Look, and I'm totally cool cutting it in. But I think I would have been like, hey, do you mind? Heads up. What do you guys think? Yeah. Full disclosure. It's a deviation from the norm, certainly. And I don't know the guy. That's why I'd like to, if he was my neighbor and I had a better grip on him, I might be like, like for instance, let's say my brother ran a lunch, hot lunch program. And it turns out that he's putting in, cutting in kangaroo with the beef. I would think he's not being clever. He's not being tricky. He's not being cutesy resentful it's just in his head he looked it's like wow i can get that for that price and i'm just i think that he would have done it and it wouldn't occur to him to tell anybody about it this is a guy who microwaves deer trim in tupperware containers and puts salt on it and eats it oh 
Uh, I mean, think of the attitude. I'm not calling this uh, cafeteria fellow a chef, but think of the attitudes of most chefs, right? They're like, this is my space. I control this. I control what's going on. I orchestrate what's going on here. It may not have even occurred to this guy in any way yeah. to have to ask anybody about anything. That's his domain, right? Yeah. Or, or since we don't know him, maybe he's a total smartass. And he's real, like, on the edge, kind of wants to quit. Yeah, smoking heaters behind school right next to the no tobacco on school property sign. Yeah, don't know. Don't know anything about him. And if that was the case, I'd be like, dude, you did it because you thought it'd be funny. Yes. Uh, Oh, you know what, Yanni, why don't you, you, just just to come full circle on it, why don't you bring up a couple zingers from Mark Twain, Sam Clements. Um. Moving on down a couple things, Uh, a friend of mine shared with me an interesting uh, academic piece about some linguists who, are you guys familiar with the Maori? I'm I'm, I'm like mutilating the name a little bit. Maori. No, you got it. From New Zealand. So the indigenous people of New Zealand, um, and they were looking at, so they drove, like when the indigenous New Zealanders, the Maori, arrived in New Zealand. They drove a, 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 there was a, I think it was like a family of birds, but these things called moas, these giant flightless birds. Um, they drove, they overhunted them and drove them to extinction. And linguists are looking at the Maori language and art and other things, and we're looking at like. Did they? What was their comprehension of the extinction that they were causing? And the language is littered with references to the vanishing and then gone Moa. It was a cognizant. So they saw it coming. It was a cognizant thing. And then later, when Europeans arrived and introduced disease and, and exploitation and warfare and started really killing them off, the Maori would say, we will be gone like the Moa. So that, yeah, so it was like, because you wonder, like, when, when the, you know, all these, you know, woolly mammoths going extinct, giant ground sloths going extinct, contemporaneous with the arrival, the arrival of the first Americans who came across the Bering Land Bridge. And you wonder, did, what was their thought process? Like, how did they look at what was happening? Were they aware of it? Or did it eventually be like, you know what I haven't seen in a long time? But there was people who saw some at some point and then never saw, never them, again. saw them again. Yeah, so what was their awareness of it? Right? But you don't even have to go that far. I mean, just think of the buffalo hunters that we talk about all the time, right? Yeah. There were definitely people who were like, we are driving these animals to extinction. We're watching it firsthand. And then there's the dudes in Miles City being like, just waiting on that northern herd to come yep. down. Yeah. Hornaday talked about Haven't that. Haven't seen it in 25 years, but yeah. it's coming. Yeah, when Hornaday came out to try to collect one of the last couple living ones for, for the Smithsonian, he talked about that there was people in Miles City who were still just biding their time, waiting for the next Sharpening big, knives. <laughs> waiting for the next big push. To come from the north, which never showed up. So, yeah, it's, it's interesting. Uh, a couple more little tidbits. Some researchers in New Hampshire and Maine were looking at, you know, moose are dying from uh, tick-borne diseases. They looked at a dead moose. How many ticks are on it? 47,000. 
thousand ticks. Which is a cute story, but it's got nothing to do with it. It's the wolves that are killing them, Steve. No, I know. It's the big bad wolves the ticks, that, aren't, that aren't even there. The ticks just slow them down a little bit. <laughs> uh, Forty-seven thousand ticks, man. What I was bitching, I was bitching about an estimated two hundred and fifty or so chigger bites that I had. Forty-seven thousand ticks. The bear meat that uh, got that made us sick, that gave us trichinosis, when they tested it at a lab in in Atlanta, Georgia. It had, I think, 868 or something like that trichinella larva per gram. And it wound up coming out to that that meat has close to a half million. I can't remember the exact number, but I remember this when I did the math on it. Close to a half million larva per pound of bear meat. If you're eating an infected piece of bear meat, that's how much is in there. Moving on. A guy wrote in, and this is kind of an interesting point. This is another comment because we, we just put our, like I said, our, uh, the seventh season of Meat Eaters up as a Netflix original right now. And so we've been getting a lot of email people writing in. And the guy wrote in and he's like, I kind of get it that you probably didn't have time to get into this, but it warrants talking about what the 40-mile caribou herd. And the 40-mile, we, we have a couple episodes that focus on the 40-mile, a herd of caribou in Alaska called the 40-mile herd. And he feels like we did a real disservice to the discussion by not bringing up the degree to which aerial wolf control led to the recovery of that caribou herd and how um, how kicking ass the 40-mile herd is today. And it's interesting because this is just another thing about show business. We talked about that a whole bunch. Just didn't make the cut. You got 22 minutes. Mm-hmm. We didn't see or hear a wolf on that. No, and I wanted to point out to him they can't aerial. We were actually in a spot that they don't aerial gun. They can't aerial gun. And it's still, you said how many thousand get nailed by wolves out of that herd? Like 4,000 of yeah. them get eaten by wolves. Yeah. Brown bears kill a bunch. Wolves kill a bunch. They kill way more than people kill. But. When the 40-mile herd was really whittled back, like in the lowest of the low time, um, it was aerial wolf gunning that it alleviated a lot of pressure on that herd. Gave them a chance to come back. Yeah. Because it might have happened otherwise, but he just felt that it was like a a missed opportunity to clarify a point. Because you remember when um, uh, it it just comes up now and then, like aerial wolf gunning is like controversial. Anything. Remember, people felt that like Sarah Palin's like literally like that she was literally up shooting wolves out of helicopters. It was kind of like a just like now and then the popular culture kind of grabs onto these little tidbits that they don't really understand well and run with them. Lastly, before we get into what we're here to talk about, Steve, you got your calls ready? Because when I come out, I'm going to talk about something else. And then when I come out of this, I want you to be ready to rip some calls, some Sika calls. Sure. Do you want to do the bugle? I can. It's not going to blow your listeners' ears out. No. Well, stand by because we're not ready yet. All right. I just want to tease people with what's coming. Um, yeah, like this is like an apology to a bunch of people about something I messed up. And I feel really shitty about it. Uh, we usually never talk in great detail about locations of anything. And I did a hunt in southeast Washington. 
And we talked in great detail about locations, and it was a really bad judgment call on my part. And I want to apologize to anyone who's offended by it. And it was like a shitty thing of me to do. I don't want to, act, I'm going to tell you why I did it. And I don't want you to think that, I don't want people to think that I'm justifying what I did. I'm saying that it was wrong and I really regret it. And it's not a mistake I will ever make again. It was wrong. But I want to just clear, like to tell you where my head was, I think it's like helpful to understand where it's coming from. Not offered as a justification. I felt that, that I was hunting on a tag that's very difficult to draw. Okay, even to get an archery permit here takes six to ten years. So thinking there, I'm thinking like it doesn't really become like someone's spot, right? It's not like you go there every year and do something. It's like now and then you're given a you know a person might expect to once or twice in a lifetime get to go here and hunt. Um, and also the number of people that can draw the tag is limited. It's tightly limited, ten to fourteen people. So. Whether or not people know about it or not isn't going to have any bearing on the competition load because the competition load is dictated by the number of tags. Now, that gets a little bit more complicated, and I'll explain where I'm wrong on that too, but that was in my mind. In my mind was it's limited by the availability of tags. Only 10 to 14 people can hunt it anyway, so you don't need to worry about sending a bunch of people to a place that's over the counter, which I would really never do. And... You can only draw it every, like, you know, you, you draw it every 10 years. So um, it's not like it's your, like, annual honey hole. And so for those reasons, because um, we never talk about specificity of a spot, for those reasons, I kind of had it in my head that it was okay to talk about it. Another thing that influenced my thinking is it's a pretty small unit. Most of the unit, or the bulk of the unit, majority of the unit is privately held. The publicly held piece is basically, like, just a single drainage or, you know, kind of a drainage with a fork in it. Um, there's, a most, there's a lot of places you can stand and look at the whole entire unit from one spot. Um, you know, it's 40, like basically 40 square miles of country that you can look over one spot. It's very easily understood. Um, and I just thought that it wasn't really having any real bearing on things. The herd moves around a lot in there. It just didn't seem to matter. What, what, you know where I'm going with this, Yanni? I want you to prepare I, your thoughts, have, please. Yeah, I'm preparing a counter thought. Okay. And Cal, I'd like you to prepare your thoughts. Brody, if you have thoughts on this, you can prepare them as well. That was my thinking. What I didn't consider is this. I didn't consider the fact that there are people who apply for the unit and they've come to enjoy a certain percentage chance of getting it and that by talking about it and promoting it, you would dilute their chances. So that makes it wrong. Um. And it was just wrong because friends of friends and people I encountered were generous enough to tell me about it, and maybe they won't draw the tag next year, but maybe their buddy will draw the tag next year, and I screwed their buddy over by talking about it. It was just wrong. I feel like shit about it. I think about it every day. Yanni? It's real interesting because that unit falls in a spot where like it's – popular enough to have a you know low percentage of drawing it but it's not popular enough that like everybody just knows it to be like the unit of washington because if you drew a unit 10 or 9 in arizona and we went down there for an archery elk hunt we sure as hell would have pretty much the same experience talk to people on the ground that hunt it and get info but it's so popular already that like 
we I don't think us talking about it are going to decrease the odds farther, right? Yep. Like we just wouldn't have that effect. So I don't know. I can't say if that's actually going to happen. People might feel that that's going to happen. That all of a sudden there's going to be this influx of you know uh, applications to, to that unit, maybe. But so I don't know if you should actually feel that bad. Really? Yeah. Do you feel bad? No. Why do people get mad at me and not you? <laughs> I don't know. Because <laughs> you do most of the talking. <laughs> <laughs> Cal? Yeah, I mean, when we first talked about this, it, it, I thought it was more of like a once-in-a-lifetime unit. According to some guys that I talked to, they f- do feel it's a once-in-a-lifetime unit. Um, like with just the creep of odds. Like you're just not going to draw the thing twice. Yep. In that case... Uh, like Bridget Noonan in our office right now, she has a a true once in a lifetime tag, a moose tag in Idaho. Bold you moose literally tag. cannot draw it again. You, if you're successful, you cannot draw it again. Yeah, and well, that's interesting. So if you is same thing for all those trophy species. If you yep. draw a bighorn and don't t- notch your tag, you get to keep going. Correct. I yep. disagree with that. Oh, that's interesting. Um, well, I th- that's a good. I'd love to have that argument with you because I think that would fall in a, a grouping of regulations that could possibly force folks into making poor decisions out in the field. But to the immediate question, <laughs> she has a once-in-a-lifetime tag, and people are crawling out of the woodwork to help her. Her phone's ringing off the hook with, hey, I just saw a moose over here. Hey, I just saw a moose over here. How does that not fall into electronic communications? This is a, this is a thing we got to no, talk about. Oh, that's very more. interesting. How That is legal in Idaho, though. Oh, electronic communi- two-way communications are legal. It is, to yeah. To convey the whereabouts of the game. Which I despise, but... Should be not. Um, how much help do you need out there? Like, at what point are you just not hunting? Like, I, I feel like good woodsmanship skills are falling off the table every day. But um, there's, a, there's a good point of like, hey, it's a once-lifetime tag. Other people who have been successful in the same unit are free-flowing with information. You know, it's all dated information, of course, but they're like, yes, this time, this spot, went up here, glass from here, called from here, drove this road every single day, all that stuff. And it's based off the fact that they're never going to hunt it again. So, in those situations, man, help people out. It's not yeah. going to hurt you at all. But you know what? It's not like, um, I feel it's wrong even if I knew that I didn't harm someone. Like, if harm someone's chance. It's just like, it was like, and it wasn't even something I thought about. It just happened very fast. And it was just a really, it was one of my, it's one of my biggest, like, uh, it's one of my biggest, like, professional regrets. Yeah. Doing that. Because we have a policy of not doing it, and for some reason I've made a snap decision. And I don't think that anyone that's mad at me about it is going to stop being mad at me about it because I'm apologizing. No, absolutely not. They're just going to dig in deeper. Yeah. I sure would. But, you know, if on the other hand, too, like if you feel like giving out really solid information could somehow deprive somebody of their experience with this golden ticket in their hand, that might be a way of looking at it. It's not really the way I look at it, but yeah. I think you just made yourself a scapegoat is all because there's a way to check it, see how many applications they get for that unit in the coming years following the podcast. Yeah, but or the video. Yeah, but how do you know that everything else remained constant? 
points are constantly going up. And I, I like I sympathize with some of these people because like I'm a big game hunter and I'm aware of like certain units and certain regions in western states that are known for certain species. I didn't know anything about that unit beforehand. You know, I'd never heard about yeah, it. Yeah, but non-residents don't like if you go like a service like Hunting Fool to do non-resident yeah. tag applications, they recommend against they recommend against and don't even do Washington applications for right, non-residents. So Washington so hostile yeah. to Washington yeah. so hostile to non-residents. I'm just saying, you know, that you got to sympathize with the guy who's like I have a, I, I am sympathizing you know, with him. I'm telling him I'm, I, I'm saying I that I messed up and I'm yeah. and I'm deeply sorry and I really regret it. And it was a stupid thing to do and it was a shitty thing to do. Do you guys think and this is something I've thought <clears> of? <throat> do you guys think it would so on the pure meat harvesting side of things, I think that the rule of don't drive past one to get one is a really good rule. And I know my first year in Idaho, I was like, I am going to hunt within 15 minutes of the office because I know there's elk within 15 minutes of the office. And Just gave away a spot. Yeah. <laughs> um, for the greater good, I hope. So do you, I've often thought, should residents of a county have a better chance, like written into the system, Dude, of drawing so within far that away unit? from what we're talking about right now? I don't think so. Because <laughs> we're talking about opportunity. No, I don't think it should be by county. No. 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 Alaska does a lot of stuff like that. Really? Well, there, there's certain there's certain zip codes or that are regarded as rural subsistence and you have different regulations, but it's a different system up there. But no, I don't think it should be that you have to factor in a person's zip code to figure out what chances they have of drawing a tag in a certain state. Oh, look at Brody. I think it'd be ripe for, I think it'd be ripe for exploitation. It would be. And I think it would be just like a, like add regulatory complexities and they just do it at the state level. Steve. So there's a contingent of folks in Maryland here who share similar sentiments about you spot burning, not just you, but Outdoor Life recently uh, published a little thing on exotic game and where you can hunt. So they put Seekadir <laughs> and Delmarva there. <clears throat> so there's this concern that the but that, that the I care less about that. I don't care about that. I'll never apologize about that. Apologize about telling Americans about a, a wild game resource that's available? Absolutely. I support that 100%. That you're allowed nine of a year? No. There's arguments about that, too, about whether it's too liberal or whatnot. But, <clears throat> you know, the state has a goal of sort of containing the population within its current sort of distribution. They would have liked to have seen it contained within southern Dorchester, but it's since expanded into... Uh, Western Wicomico County across the Nanticoke River, and it's creeping outward slowly. The Seek of Deer. That was a great transition, by the way. Real good transition. Uh, would you mind ripping? Um, would you mind ripping a Seek a Stag call? liking it there you go and that sound right now is permeating the air hereabouts ringing through the marshy silence yes it's an awesome sound to hear yeah walk us through real quick um 
the real quick, and you've done it before, but walk us through the real quick history of how how Sika, Sika, or Sika. What, what what's the Sika, Sika, Sika? Sika, Sika, Sika deer came to be living hereabouts. Well, best of my knowledge, there was a <clears throat> gentleman that owned an island off the mouth of the Chop Tank River. I visited that island the other day. Yeah. Which is kind of gone. Yeah. A lot of the Chesapeake Bay Islands are disappearing before our very eyes. Um, but they were introduced there, and, and they uh, escaped the island, made the mainland, and uh, that established a population that's uh, grown since. They do. He, really had, well. he had a half dozen of them. Yep. And there's now an estimated... I think the DNR estimates the herd between ten and 15,000. It's pretty hard to census because the cover they live in is just ridiculously thick, uh, as you've seen this week. Uh, imagine trying to count those buggers. Um, so, you know, they do very well in the, especially in the marshy and, and sort of backwater habitats of southern Dorchester County, which is home to the Blackwater National Wildlife Refuge, Fishing Bay Wildlife Management Area, uh, tens of thousands of acres of, of uh, sort of brackish water to saltwater marshes uh, interspersed with mostly pine but some hardwood mixed in uh, upland habitats. Uh, and they do really well in that habitat, which is you know kind of marginal habitat for white-tailed deer as far as forage quality and that sort of thing. So they've kind of supplanted whitetails as the dominant herbivore or ungulate in southern Dorchester County <clears throat> as you move northern uh, into the more northern parts of the county where you get more agriculture you'll get mixed species herds but uh, with both whitetails and Sika. but uh, yeah southern Dorchester locals refer to it as Sikaville and they're like people like really like to draw the distinction around here between east side of Chesapeake Bay and the west side of Chesapeake Bay. Like the yeah. west side of Chesapeake Bay is all assholes. East side of Chesapeake Bay is like salt of the earth. Salt of the yeah. earth. Great people. Yeah. Give you the shirt off their back. And the Sika deer only live with the great people. Correct. They do not live with the assholes, right? Correct. They're only on the east shore. Yeah, eastern shore, if you eastern want to shore. be okay. technical about it. Yeah. Got you. Um, and this all occurred over the last hundred years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think their popularity really has only taken off in probably the last ten to twenty years, where sort of you know the word has gotten out, and they're good eating, they're abundant, they're fun to hunt. So it's really uh, it's driven lease prices. Uh, it's just it's driven sort of public use of our public lands here in, in the eastern shore of Maryland. It's been become quite popular. And so there's a contingent of people that think that, you know, it's going to overwhelm the resource. It's too limited. It's too unique. It should be protected and valued more by restricting the number of tags that are given out, that, that by introducing some form of competition for non-residents to, to obtain those permits. And, I'm fine with all that. Yeah. Well, it's a non-native, though. Right. And the minute, yeah, it's always like really tricky with to what degree do you coddle do you coddle and encourage the expansion of a non-native species that almost certainly has to come at some cost to native fauna? Yeah, any overabundant ungulate, even our native whitetails, can have deleterious ecological impacts when they hit numbers that are, you know, look at any suburban area where hunting doesn't effectively suppress that population. You'll see massive destruction of undergrowth and 
that sort of thing. Secret deer are no different, you know. They just happen not to be native. So, you know, that that's not thought to be as, as uh, damaging as, like, nutria were or, you know, zebra mussels that have these, you know, catastrophic changes to the environment. But certainly if you look hard enough, I'm sure you can find the negative impacts that at least an overabundant population. But they certainly seem at home here. I mean, they've really taken to it, and they've become ingrained in the local culture and considered by most sort of a naturalized citizen of the eastern shore. Yeah. Did you know that there was a plan um, a long time ago, hundred over 100 years ago now, to introduce hippopotamuses into Louisiana? No. They thought they wanted to introduce them as a meat source and to, and to control water hyacinth. <laughs> That'd be cool. Had they done it, had they done it, you now wouldn't think it was weird. By now, you wouldn't think it was weird to see a hippo in Louisiana, in the Bayou country. And I feel now it's like these deer seem just like totally unweird and at home. Yeah. I have to admit, you know, they seem like it, like it wouldn't surprise you. It's not like zebras running around. It's like if someone told me, like, oh no, it's just this native species deer, I'd be like, oh, that makes sense. Yeah, hippos kill a lot of people though. That'd yeah. be like introducing a grizzly bear. No, they're way worse than grizzlies and wolves into the deep south, right? Yeah. Like hundreds of people a year die from hippos. <laughs> Seriously. Well, yeah. So I think it would be a little different. I think the weirdness would still be like, why did we introduce? This aquatic killer. <laughs> yeah, it's, a, I'm not, it's not apples and apples. It's not apples and apples. But I'm saying, like, no, I got over time, they become, like, the sika the deer, as they call Now, folks around here call them sika deer. But it just, it's too confusing to me because we already have a Sitka blacktail. Sitka blacktail. And so a sika deer, I just say sika so I, so I can keep my head straight. And the head straight of those around me. Um, but, yeah, I, I feel that, it, like... Uh, it doesn't take long for the animal to become woven into the cultural fabric. Guys drive around here with decals on their window that say marsh ghost. Snakeheads, too. There, there's like a snakehead culture here, too. Yep. That's, That's established in five years. Yeah. Snakehead fishing culture. Snakehead guys. Snakehead contests. On. Snakehead tackle. Mm-hmm. You guys really grab on... Um, Asian stuff. They like Asian species. <laughs> exactly. And yet our one uh, all-you-can-eat buffet in Cambridge closed a couple years ago. Is that right? Damn, I'm sad to see that go. <laughs> Can you zap us with the, the call behind? Now, uh, sure. Yeah, a lot. Everybody knows the word stag, but I feel like some like a good percentage of people probably don't realize that the gender opposite term, the gender opposite term for stag, is hind. Correct. Same way, bull, cow, buck, doe. Yep. What stag, other ones are there? Hind. There's other and ones. And it's hind with a D on it. Boar and sow. Boar, sow. Stag, hind. Buck, or buck. Uh, Already said that, yeah. buck, though. You can always tell new Sika hunters because they call them Sitka deer and they call them hinds. H-I-N-E-S. Hind. Yeah, which they are not. <laughs> They're hinds with a D. And the stag and hind yeah. thing probably came from British culture, yeah? Yeah, because they've been introduced there as yeah. well. Rain or shine, every day is a great day for fishing, right? And you probably got rain gear, but you shouldn't overlook sunny day gear. Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite Hoodie has you covered on the sunniest day. 
Man, I was just in Hawaii and I had my Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie with me. And here's the deal. We're in and out of the water all the time, getting in to go spearfishing, getting out, taking the kids to the beach. I'm not going to mess around all day putting sunscreen on and having to get washed off. I just run a hoodie. I mean, who wouldn't trade a sunburn for a trophy fish? But why do it if you don't have to, especially when this Solar Stream Elite hoodie is built with broad-spectrum UV protection? We're talking UPF 50, and it has airflow, so you don't overheat. And what's the alternative? Putting down the rod every half hour so you can slather on some sunscreen. Seems like an easy choice to me. So if you're going to be spending long days out on the water, and I sincerely hope that you will be, head on over to Columbia.com slash PFG and shop all of their performance fishing gear. Man, I just got a new truck. Before I even drove my new truck anywhere, I wasn't going to drive it anywhere until I put a deck system in it. That's how, that's what a believer I am in decked. I always thought they were a great deal, but now they're even better because they have redesigned their drawer system in storage cases from the ground up. It's like, I didn't know there was a problem with them. I don't know, they seem great to me. Just an improvement on perfection. The new system, made in the USA, Gives you 10 to 30% bigger drawers to fit more gear. It's lockable and secure, right? Weatherproof storage for all your gear. You build it right into your truck bed. You still have a truck bed you can put stuff on. The top deck of the new system has eight D-ring tie-downs integrated into the steel. So you have really burly anchor points to hook stuff down on your bed. So you got to slam on the brakes or take off real fast. Nothing shifts. And like I said, they're they're D-rings that lay real flat. Like You still slide stuff right across the deck it doesn't catch on the d-rings the d-rings are built in the drawer system fits any trucker van on the road in the usa from the last 20 plus years deck is a game changer there's no more like leaving stuff at home that you wish you had with you the stuff i want in my truck is in my truck out of the way and secure go to deck.com slash meat eater to receive free shipping O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. Okay, rip out, a, rip out a hind call. The similarities between these sons of bitches and um, elk, antler structure, kind of the 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 the, the mane on the stags, yep. the breeding behavior, their demeanor, demeanor. When they stand out there, they look yeah. mean, yeah, impressive. The bugling, the cow calling, all the crazy vocalizations, the fact that they come to the calls. Very elk-like. Very fun. Nothing like hunting elk, but they're elk-like little critters. 
The stag's got little ivories like bull elk. Yeah, you were like, checking that yeah, out. Yeah, little yeah. tiny things. Yeah. yeah, you don't want to get on the ground with these things. Giannis and I found out. Giannis knew. He let me find out for myself. Like in the marsh. Because they'll charge you if you get too close. <laughs> or they'll just vanish. No, you just can't see the things. Yeah. They're like three a, and a half feet tall. What is the hind what is a hind weigh? The average probably dresses at forty five pounds, somewhere in there. You might get a monster hind that dresses sixty. Less than a bull elk's hind quarter. Yeah, for sure. He weighs less than a bull yeah. Definitely weighs less than a bull elk's hind quarter. Stags I've seen or she weighs less than a bull elk's hind quarter. I've seen stags as big as 110, 115 dressed come in through the check station at Blackwater uh, when I used to work down there. But uh, it uh, it's the average is generally around 85, maybe 90 pounds for a mature stag. It's a true monster that hits plus 100. Yeah, dinky. Well, you know what, man? You want to hear, uh, I was talking about you having a good segue. You want to talk about a real bad segue is this. I forgot to talk about the blue crabbing real quick. Right. And the reason I want to talk about the blue crab real quick is that we talked about it before we did it before we hunted deer. Right. So fact check me on this. Now I'm gonna have you fact check me on some on some other stuff about Sika deer. But if you're a resident here, you can go out and get a license, a separate license, to run a blue crab trot line. Correct? Yep. It's called a recreational crabbing license. Okay. And what it allows you to do is take a 1200, it allows you to run a 1200 foot trot line. And there's no hooks. It's like this 1200 feet of line, and you just tie little slipknot loops all along it and put in two, two and a half inches of chicken neck in each loop. So you have this 1200 foot thing, right? The length of four football fields. And every five feet is a two inch chunk of chicken neck tied onto the line and you go out to a likely spot and we went out to a submerged creek channel so the surrounding stuff's like one or two feet deep but then there's this this, this submerged creek channel that's six feet deep and on one end of this 1200 foot line you got a weight like an anchor and coming up is a buoy to mark the anchor and so you set it you set the anchor and then you lay out this 1200 feet of chicken necks and Pull the line tight and set that anchor. And you wait a couple minutes and go down to the other end where you began setting and you grab the line that has the chicken necks on it. And the boat has, you just like hook a little arm out on the side of your boat. So just imagine like, imagine that you hung your arm out over the gunnel of the boat and you drape the trot line up over your arm and then slowly motor along so that it's anchored on each end, but you're lifting apart up up to the water surface and just cruising along. Can I ask you a question? Go ahead. So there's no soak time. It's like by the time you get the line laid out, you're turning it's around time and to going, check. they're already on. You don't it. let it soak. Yeah. It's time to check it the minute you get laid out. Yeah. You just go back to where you started, drape it up over the arm, and then motor that 1,200 feet. Yeah. And you're going along slowly, and it's just raising it up. And the chicken necks are coming up going tunk, tunk, tunk over your arm. And the blue crabs hang on so tenaciously that they're going to hang on to that chicken neck. Most of them hang on to that chicken neck, and they're going to hang on to it until they get to the air. The last second. Yep. If it's sunny out, they're more likely to drop off. On a cloudy day, they're more likely to hang on. So you got your guy driving the boat, and then you got your guy with a wire mesh net 
The same kind of wire mesh used for smelt dipping where you can really grease it through the water quick. There's no drag, you know. It's like chicken wire basket on a net. On a net. And you stand there, and as you see the crabs rise up, you get your net down, and you get the line because the crab's hanging off the bait. So your, your net needs to come in and kind of grab the line at the top of the net, and then you basically use the net to knock the crab off the line into the net. And you whip them up and put them into a bushel basket. And it took us seven passes. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Like no wait time. Just down, back, down, back, down, back. It took us seven passes to fill up a bushel basket with blue crabs. How many in a bushel do you think? It varies a lot, man. Yeah, based on size. And they say, because this is big blue crab country and there's a commercial industry and everything for blue crabs, that there's like, it's a unit of measure. So bag limit is volume. Bag limit, it's like shrimp, right, in Alaska. Volume bag limit, not number bag limit. And it could be, it could vary greatly. But it should be that I think if you have a bushel basket, there's 40 pounds. I think it needs to be right. At least 40 pounds are in that bushel basket. Or that be something not, like I'm that? I'm not entirely sure. There's a weight component. It's a volume thing, but industry standard is that, my understanding is the industry standard is it should include, it should include a certain weight. And a live blue crab, I'd guess, would weigh half a pound. Yeah. Right? Something like not that. Not close. No? Yeah, less than Quarter that, pound? Yeah, probably. So there's... And well this, over a hundred of them, in and there. and the thing about these blue crabs are, as it was explained to me, that they're like the population demographics fluctuate fluctuate a lot according to salinity. So there are areas you can go that have far fewer blue crabs, but tend to be bigger. And there's areas you can go that have gr- hordes of them that tend to be dinks. And the guy we were with was explaining that this is a, a, a salinity level and location that he feels kind of hits that sweet spot between good size and abundance. Mm. Yeah, in North Carolina, when we go down to Jennifer's uh, family's camp on Topsail Island, that camp is a lot closer to the inlet. It's higher salinity, and we feel like we get bigger uh, blue crabs than the ones we get at her parents' house, which is farther away from the two inlets. Big mambo jambos. Yeah. Another thing I learned is that soft shell crab, like during the summer, like blue crabs grow fast, and during the summer they molt every month. I don't know if every crab molts every month or if they have to hit like a certain size, but there's always like an age class that's molting. Yeah, and females have a terminal molt. Right. Females will do, at some point, they stop molting. Yep. And a male will continue to molt, correct? Mm Mm-hmm. When you see soft-shell crabs on the menu, here's the part that I didn't realize. When you see soft-shell crabs on the menu, it's not that a dude's out crabbing and catches a soft-shell and throws him in a separate bucket. You take crabs and retain them and keep checking them. Right. What they're looking for is peelers, uh, crabs that have started the process. You can tell there's a different coloration in the back fin. So you can hold that up to the light, and you can see this little sort of pinkish ring. And he's a peeler. And that's a peeler. That's a crab that's approaching the molt. And they'll take those, and they'll put them in these shedding houses. And they'll keep them in these big troughs with with uh, sort of flowing water going over. And they'll check them hourly. 
um, through the night because it usually takes place at night and usually the vast majority molt during the full moon. And so it's an all-night thing. They're checking them all night long. And as soon as what? they... They, uh, yeah, as soon no as they idea. shed out, they, yeah. they get them out of the water. You have to get them out of the water immediately because as soon as they shed, what they do is they puff up with water to expand that new shell, and it gets bigger than their current body size, and then they grow into that. So very quickly, that, uh, that soft as baby's bottom skin crab will turn into what they call a paper crab where it gets kind of crinkly. It's still softish, but it's kind of yep. crinkly. And we had one of those... Yeah, one of those yeah. like the the top of it was when they fried it was like lifted off the mm-hmm. crab. Yeah, yeah. So, so when they're pulling them out of traps or off of a trot line, are they looking at them and saying pot peeler, regular crab, regular crab, regular crab peeler? So they're like, you know, they- I think they might be doing some sorting. So most of the commercial guys. Are not doing. They're not handling each crab individually like Steve was with a net. They're, they've yeah. got a like a a big basket that that line runs up through, and then. But someone at some point is. But yeah, someone's got a sort. Yeah. yeah, and if you know what you're looking for, it's it's yeah. plain as day. I've always had a little bit of trouble trying to figure out what's the difference between a peeler and a regular hard shell crab. But you but, can't. Uh, yeah, a recreational guy can't retain females. Correct. And on a dungy, I have to look at the bottom carapace to tell a male from a female. But on these. The females have red claw tips. Yeah, and also, and I don't want a gender stereotype, but people say you see that red thing, and it's females have their nail polish on. And I'd get so good in my little jaunt that I learned not to even net those ones. Yeah, and just to, just to kind of brush them off the line, and let them go. But the commercial guys are allowed to keep. Females. They can keep females. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, you can keep them in North Carolina, but we choose not to. Because you guys are conservationists. Thinking that they're going to make more jimmies. Yeah, that's another good thing to bring up. <clears throat> a male crab is a jimmy. And a female is a what? A sook. S-O-O-K. Isn't there multiple kinds of sooks? There's, uh, what do they call them? A sally is an immature female. Yeah, that's right. So they have more of a triangular-shaped uh, apron. And once they hit maturity, the sook has a big sort of a rounded... Uh, apron. It was good to learn about the molting thing because that was the thing I've always curious about when we trap Dungeness crabs. Is now and then you get one who's still got a softest shell, not like he's on the way out, but it's his new shell. And we'll throw those back because you open them and there's like no meat in there, right? And I now realize it's because he just got a bigger shell that he hasn't filled out yet, right? So now I've learned instead of bringing them home and opening it up and it's full of like watery, emaciated stuff, we just ditch them. But I never knew like quite what I was looking at, yeah. like why it was that way. He had like gotten himself. It's like when you're buying shoes for your kid. Yep. I'm you're like, well, I'm not going to buy you big. shoes that fit dead on nuts because you're going to tomorrow they won't fit anymore. I'm going to make you struggle through the big ones right. for a few months, then you'll fit them and then move on. Yep. Okay. Fact check. Anything else on crabs? So we covered it pretty good. Oh, soft shell crab, there's a way to clean it. You kind of open it up and get the gills out, get the guts out, put it kind of back together again, and then fry it. Did you realize that, Cal? No, I, I thought they just fried the whole thing. No, no. Nope. Cut the face off, cut the apron off, and then you lift cut up. the sex the, organs. Yep, you, you lift up the points, and you clear those dead man's fingers, they call them, the lungs out mm-hmm. on each side. 
some people go as far as to clean out the mustard and the guts and fat and the. See, interior. I like the mustard. Yeah, I think it adds a, yeah. a particular flavor. So I'm not a big mustard guy personally. Okay, one one question though is uh, when they're harvesting these things out of the uh, the malt house, the sloughing house, sloughing house. Okay, um, are they just like throwing them in the freezer? Uh, cleaning them, selling them. Yeah, it depends on what their market is, but they do freeze some, but some get sold fresh, you know, right away to local markets. But they just keep them out of the water to stop the molting process. Yeah, I think they'll put them on ice. Ice. Oh, we were eating those paper. crab balls yesterday. That place had soft shells for sale. Yeah. Did yeah. you catch the price? Nope. Didn't ask. I'm jealous of the crab balls. Dude, crab balls are good. You buy a half dozen or a dozen. Me and Steve each threw down on a half dozen. And yeah. Steve said here about. All of those made it back to the house here. Yeah. Steve, no, we ate them. Steve said that hereabouts in crab country, you can't get away with pulling that long John Silver's bullshit of putting in all the fillers. He says a crab ball is crab. Like people won't, people are intolerant of you making like little crab flavored hush puppies and whatnot. The crab cakes like in the Rocky Mountain states are a little lacking, you know, a lot of times. It's a soft breadcrumb. Yeah. Yeah, with a little nugget in there. No, these crab balls are crab. Not cutting it with kangaroo or anything. No, they don't cut. They don't <laughs> cut any. They don't cut any room meat in there, man. Crab with Cisco room meat. Um, Cal, let me hit you with one other thing. That I don't know if you caught because you weren't out with us. Do you know that those crabs have two peckers? Oh, yep, yep. You knew that? Yeah, Keith. I like uh, that. Or I'm sorry, Trevor. Um, pointed that one out. Mm-hmm. Kind of as a, as a uh, you know, don't you wish type of thing. Yeah, it's a little bit disturbing. Yeah. I don't wish that I had no. to. Well, as I your mean, son says at some level it's like it, it, it's intriguing to me and i considered it but in the end no <laughs> because i feel that it would be one of those things that you might view as being initially advantageous only to find that it doesn't in fact what in the world sorry that that's me? me oh hit, hit your mute button um i tell, tell the matthew story because i think that pertains to this very well yeah so <laughs> Well, it, like I feel that it'd be one of those things that you might initially think was a great advantage, but there's a thing called sexual selection in this world, where there are like attributes. Like people think, let me give you an example. People think that antlers, okay, the antlers on an elk are are not like uh, driven by like natural selection of like competitive advantage, but are a thing of sexual selection, meaning that a bull. Let's say a deer puts on a huge set of antlers. It comes at a cost, right? Because he needs to put nutrients into producing those antlers. It's extra weight that he needs to carry around. Um, the, the extra weight that he's carrying around, leads he needs to take in more calories to tote it around. Um, he can't slick through the brush as nice. All these kind of things. But the sexual advantage is that females view those antlers as a sign of fitness. And... You might think, like, oh, he needs these big antlers to fight, but the more important component might be that a female associates good antler growth with health, and she wants to have sex with that buck. Yeah, you'll hear people say antlers are for fighting off wolves and things like that. It's all to get the ladies. It's a sexual display. Yeah. A, 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 a well, turkey. no, that's not true. Well, let me just... finish my point, please, if you don't mind. Then, then I'm going to open it up to you, but I, I haven't right. gotten to where I'm going with this. Okay. Uh what was I saying? Oh, 
a, a, yeah, a turkey on a, a strutting tom. It's all sexual display. There's no like advantage to him to do that. It's just he's going to lure in ladies. It comes at a cost. Point being, you might think that having dual peckers is like awesome, but it could be that, that it is not a good sexual display and in fact pushes possible mates away. Like they just can't get on board with it. Having one causes enough problems. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Go ahead, Giannis. I'm opening the floor up to Giannis now. That was all. I just wanted to arrive at that point, but please. Oh, I was just saying that uh, the antlers aren't – there was just that uh, paper that was published. That I thought we all passed around about the how they were talking about the antlers on the bull elk in Yellowstone and that having those big antlers came at a cost because it took more energy to produce such big antlers. So it might have produ- it might have brought in more ladies, but the bigger antlers weren't necessarily better in, in defending themselves from the wolves. And so there, there's actually some, uh, what's that called, like uh, nature deciding which way it's going to go. Selection. So selection towards smaller antlers because it didn't cost so much energy and made them better, more agile to fight off the wolves. Yeah, but you agree that people think deer have antlers just for fighting and they don't often realize that there's things in the animal world about sexual display and definitely things in the human world about sexual display. Yeah, it's probably... But I wonder, too, about what... Do we really know the thought process that a female deer is going through when she decides to who she's going to allow to breed her? We definitely know. Because, you know, you hear all the time about while the herd bull's off defending his harem, all the satellite bulls are kind of slipping in and breeding cows behind him. So if they're allowing that to happen, that kind of blows that whole theory. And QDMA just released a study last year that says almost the same thing where it's like if that forked horn is at the right place in the right time it will absolutely breed that doe she'll allow it yeah just because it's it's a timing thing uh, but to jump back to the two pecker thing go ahead right so when you're busting up these crabs you rip like for um uh, uh yanni you were saying that a lot of times you guys you guys will pre-clean and then steam um, so you rip the carapace off, and you you're looking at a com- ideally a perfectly symmetrical animal right there, right? So you got a knuckle consisting of how many legs? Five legs on each side, and so is the female set up the exact same way, where there's a reproductive organ on each side? Oh. That's a good question. I don't know if she's symmetrical in her reproductive organs. Yeah, because that makes sense, right? Yeah. I was just, just had that thought when we were uh, checking out the two peckers. I can't answer that. If they have dual, like what their ovary structure is and whatnot, and yeah. if they have what their cloaca or vent is, if they have two or one, yeah. less than one. Well, so I, I think one on each side. Makes I sense. think, no expert on blue crabs, but a female that's bred, they call her a sponge crab. And she houses, she releases all those eggs onto these little filaments under her apron, and her apron will sort of bulge out, and there will be this cloud of eggs. I love all these turns in there, yeah. And I think that's that the fertilization is external. I don't think they're like breeding there. I think the the males are inserting their peni into that cloud of eggs, just like a fish, yeah, fish. I think so. Gotcha. That's how my kid found out about uh, human lovemaking. Is we were looking at, we were cleaning perch, and we're looking, no, we're cleaning salmon. And I'm showing them the eggs, 
and the sperm, and I'm explaining how the female lets the eggs out in the in the red, and the male puts his seed in there and fertilizes the eggs, and it happens externally. And he got to wondering, since a mommy person has the baby inside of her, how in the world do you deliver <laughs> the sperm? And he later was explaining to his nanny, uh, we overheard him saying, and my mommy did that three times. <laughs> um, uh, Yanni, can you zap us with the Mark Twain quote now? Yeah. Well, yeah, I got a bunch of them. Here's what's your favorite. The one I will always remember, just so I can get it just right, that I like, and I try to... Uh, you want us to come back to you? No. And uh, I, I try to do this myself. Not so much that I want like you to abide by this quote, but I try to keep it in my mind. But it's uh, it is better to keep your mouth closed and let people think you are a fool than to open it and remove all doubt. <laughs> That's my favorite. Give us another one. Uh, whenever you find yourself on the side of majority, it is time to pause and reflect. Here's another one. It is not the size of the dog in the fight. It's the fight in the dog. Can't depend on your eyes when your imagination is out of focus. Well, that's a good hunting one, actually. It is a good one. Courage is resistance to fear, mastery of fear, not absence of fear. Mark Twain. I think that cannot depend on your eyes when your imagination is out of focus may relate to your bow hunting conundrum. There. And it relates to anyone who ever thinks they saw a Bigfoot. <laughs> uh, fact check me on this, Steve. Back to Seeker Deer. Mm -hmm. The way Maryland manages Seeker Deer and all deer, I think, is this. That you have bag limits that relate to the weapon restriction. I'm not saying that very well. That you have, you, the, the, the state recognizes three weapons distinctions. Correct. Archery, which includes crossbows, correct? Mm-hmm. Muzzleloader and general firearms. General firearms. Some counties are shotgun only. Some allow center fire rifles. You're in an area that allows center fire rifles. We are. Dirt so system. you're allowed three seek a deer per weapon. Right. Each season has its own bag limit. Two, or a total of three, no more than one stag. Correct. So you could shoot three hinds or one stag and two hinds. And we came down for the final days of the archery season. Yeah, early archery. Final days of early archery and gave it our all for three days. Mm -hmm. I was the only one that loosed an arrow. Ineffectively, but I loosed an arrow. <laughs> Um, and you guys are trying to hunt with uh, traditional. Like, I kind of like take offense at calling it traditional archery because there's like really like non-traditional elements in it. Like, what do you guys yeah. call it? I guess My bow would not be because it's made of carbon. It's like a carbon fiber longbow. Yeah, there's carbon fiber sandwiched in between real wood and carbon and fiber arrow and carbon fiber arrows. Yeah, there's nothing real traditional about it. Yeah. But it's, it's like, what are, it's like a longbow. modern longbow. And you have a modern... Re no, you kind of have an old-timey recurve bow. Yeah, it's it's modern. I mean, it's got fiberglass. It's a bare production bow. So from the olden days, though, it's a vintage bow. I think that bow's probably... Harkens back to the old yeah. times. That's what my dad was a bare recurve yeah. for a long time. 
And back then, you didn't buy a new bow every year. He's had the same damn bow for forever until compounds came yeah. out. Yeah, I shoot them until they break when I get a new one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, oddly enough, you do not need a new bow every year. I once heard a guy explaining to a first-time, I want want to be first-time archer, that if you call yourself a serious bow hunter, you buy a brand new bow every year. And I thought right? to myself, my God, the power of marketing. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, I, I'll talk quickly. I'm going to touch on my closest close encounter with my bow, and I'd like you guys to quickly touch on your closest close encounter. My closest close encounter, I see one of these little Sika deer coming through, coming across the open marsh. There's a lot of like stuff here that's just impenetrable, 10-foot-high, Phragmites grass. And there's like some areas that are other kinds of impenetrable lower plants. Then you get lucky now and then here and there, and it's just like an ankle-high marsh. And then you can see what the hell is going on. And I see this lone stag crossing a big stretch of ankle-high marsh, and his line of travel is going to like bring him to where his closest point would be like 150 yards. I decided to call at it and use what like Steve had called in one. This is going to be, I'm going to steal part of your story. Sure. You had called in one, I think it was the day before, using a combination of hind calls and a stag bugle. So I zapped him with the Kendrat combo, which we'll call it. And he, sure enough, to just much to my surprise, turns and starts heading in my direction. And then vanishes into the Phragmites. And I'm like sitting there wondering, I'm standing up ready, and you have no idea what's going on because you can't see anything. And then you hear like the water. His feet coming through the marsh. And all of a sudden he pops out in the one, in the worst possible area to pop out where it's just all these little dead pine trees. Like little dead loblollies. Yeah. Yep, probably. Like a big around, like thick as your thigh, a bunch of dead ones. And he just comes right out in there and he's like, there's no possible shot opportunity. I already got my bow back. And he's like, his rib cage is blocked by a tree. His rib cage is blocked by a tree. His rib cage is blocked by a bush. And I'm thinking, man, this is never going to happen. I can't hold my bow back forever. And he's just going to pass underneath me and be gone. And all of a sudden he like, er, stops in the opening and there's his rib cage exposed at 18 yards and i'd like I, I had fallen out of my like what you need to do to make this happen and i'd fallen into my i can't believe this is happening like i can't believe this isn't going to work out and and in there forgot about the part about aiming and everything and just sail it over not sail it over slip it over his back you aimed where you were where you're thinking until you stopped being stopped thinking yeah and i had a tree I had ranged a bunch of trees, and I had, a, I had my, like, 30-yard tree. And he popped out at the 30-yard tree. And in my head was, like, the 30-yard pin. And I'm analyzing, and I'm running, so, processing so many other little bits of information during this time that I never adjust. So I'm already a little high. Because he's now at 18 yards, and I got my, I'm still looking at my 30-yard red pin. And then the other thing is, in reviewing, like, I have the great luxury of being able to review footage and to see what happened, and Ridge Ponder was on the deer and you can go frame to frame and there's a frame where you can you catch the fletching of the arrow crossing a tree trunk and that deer is already dropped four or five ducking, inches ducking the arrow he's not ducking well i mean yes you know what i'm saying yeah. reacting to the sound he's loading yeah. up to spring away so when people say he ducked the arrow he's not like oh arrow coming <laughs> right mm-hmm. 
He's loading up to go. Yeah. If you watch a deer take off in slow motion, they go down, down, to down. spring forward. And then they're like, doing. Yeah. He's already doing his, like, I'm getting out of town. And, and Cal brought up a good point. Is like, And this is something you'll never know. If I hadn't stag called and I had just hind called, would he have come in with a different attitude and not so high strong? And that, I don't know. I don't know either, but from a lot of time in the elk woods, I would say yes. It'd be like if so, let's say you're walking but down the road. But had he even turned, he might not have come in at all. He may not have come in at all. You know? right? But let's say you're walking down the road and you hear someone scream out, a woman scream out, help, help. Okay? You're coming in with one attitude. If she says, help, help, there's a madman with a gun in here. You're coming in with a different attitude. Or you're not going You're still in. coming. <laughs> right. Well, yeah, some people would. But you're still coming. You're just coming in with a different attitude. Yes. So for me being like, mew, 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 rah, 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 he's like, man, I'm coming, but. Got my head on a swivel. <laughs> I'm coming in hot. I'm coming yeah. in nervous. So I don't know. Just missed him. You know? Missed him. And then all the, like, trouble. Just the mental problems. Yes. Which I'm still struggling with. I'm more than made up for it, I'll point out later. <laughs> but, um, uh, yeah, it's really, like, difficult, man. You practice and practice and practice. But it's hard to... Um, when you're practicing, you, it's like it just is different than the things that happen in real life. The things that happen in real life, you, the, all these other things enter in. Yeah, that's there's no ex, no substitute for experience in the woods, right? Yeah, it's almost like you need to go out in your yard. When you're out in your yard shooting your bow at targets, you almost need to have to hire people just to come and do weird stuff. Yeah, like I'm going to shoot my bow, and at some point during the shooting session, I want you to sneak up and slap me with a stick. <laughs> And learn how to shoot knowing that at any minute someone's like, like to learn how to shoot knowing that there's unexpected things. Like when you're shooting in the yard, you're like, you range it. It's not, you know, you can't, it's hard to replicate. You could even replicate a target that keeps moving behind stuff somehow. Like when we were little kids, we strung a wire between two trees and would hang rabbit targets on loops that you'd mount to the wire. And then one guy's job was to stand off to the side and pull the rope real fast. And so we'd stand on our porch and shoot long bowls and recurves and everything else at the rabbit as it zinged across the yard. That's awesome. But you got to know the trajectory, and it wasn't you weren't nervous, you weren't lustful for the rabbit. Yeah, you got to then you got to factor in the lustfulness, how badly you want the damn deer. But see, it takes me a few days of frustration to build up that lustfulness, to have that desire to complete the job. When I heard his footsteps coming through the water, I wasn't at all jacked up i wasn't jacked up matter of fact i was like wow i'm so like nonchalant right now i'm probably gonna kill this thing was my first thought mm. and i had my mantra in my head visions of grandeur That's no not it. like that not cockiness that sounded pretty cocky no i was aware of my mantra my shooting mantra i was like you have your shooting mantra this is not a big deal he's coming you're gonna get him and then he popped out, and I'm like, why did you have to pop out there? And then everything fell apart, and I lost track of my mantra. But you still wanted him real bad. Wanted him bad. Mark Kenyon um, was just introducing me to his mantra, which he, um, he does his mantra every time he shoots his bow. He doesn't have a hunting mantra. He has a shooting mantra, 
which he will not shoot an arrow without doing the mantra because he's building it into his shot cycle that he verbalizes every part of it every time and cannot shoot without verbalizing it. You can't have like, I got to switch because my current system is my hunting mantra, which I don't do every time I shoot my bow. He's like, I want to get my head to where I cannot shoot that bow without completing my thing. Almost like reverse target panic. Yep. Like you can't let the arrow go until you've accomplished those stepwise progressions. His thing is like, I don't remember the exact words, but his thing is basically like hover, like hover the pin. Then there's like this sort of thing, like you're on it. And then there's this thing, here we go. And every time he shoots his bow, he does it to train himself. And the here we go is that he begins tightening his shoulder blades. And if you get a snapshot window and you don't have time to get through it, you don't take the shot. You don't just go, ah, let the arrow go because there's your opportunity. I shot with a uh, uh, very highly regarded pistol instructor one day. And his mantra is slack out. He takes the slack out of the trigger, sight. He needs to get a trigger job done on his gun. Squeeze. <laughs> This I, you can't talk to this guy about anything because he's like shooting rocks out of the air and stuff. Oh, but okay. he uh, he swears and he's like bam 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 type of shooter, and he swears that is going through his head every single time his finger engages that trigger. He's got a slack out sight squeeze slack out sight sight squeeze. Yeah, I'm doing it, man. I'm doing. I'm I'm taking like I talked. I was on the phone with Mark Kenny for a long time talking about this, and I'm going to start. I'm going to start trying to do it. Was it here late at night after you missed that buck? Midday after I missed the buck. <laughs> I think the next day. Wow. I'm, I'm going to do it, man. I'm going to start. I'm going to change my Well, ways. you need to embrace the fact that archery is a fun thing that allows you to start hunting earlier. It doesn't need to be the love of your life. But like for me, when muzzleloader season came around here, eh, I was like, man, I do not like the fact that I did not finish the job with the bow. Yeah. But I'm willing to pick up the muzzleloader because I, at the end of the day, I want to take this meat home because it's awesome. Yeah. You got your weapon goal and you got your trip goal. Trip goal yeah. is bring some meat home. Yeah. Because I was uh, relieved that Steve managed to do well so that I could borrow his muzzleloader for a short time not that i did anything with it but just knowing yeah. he had it mm-hmm. but I, you know extend the range and just so much can go wrong when you're bow hunting and no matter how big a stag is that i might shoot with a rifle or a muzzleloader there's always this less sense of fulfillment that like god dang i would i wish i could have gotten that one with my bow talk about the one you almost got or not you didn't almost get it talk about your close encounter you had with your bow yeah, so we were, uh, frankly, just kind of scouting out a spot that I wanted to see if it would, was ready for muzzleloader season, what kind of activity there was. So we, we popped out to this little island. Yeah, which isn't an island. I like that, though. Yeah, Island of Trees. Yeah, so an island of trees out in the marsh. Right. Is just You hear about it. You guys just call it an island. Yeah. And so suspected that there is some activity there. Uh, there's sort of two little islands of trees, uh, one of which is mostly dead timber. Rinella Island and the Eagle's Nest. Yep, exactly. Um, 
And so I gave a couple calls. I think I hit the stag call, didn't I, Lauren? And then I hit some cow calls. And just within a couple minutes of blowing the stag call, uh, I see some movement. Uh, And we'd already seen a couple does, I think, hadn't we? There was movement out there. Yeah. And so here comes this stag out of the brush on Eagle Island, which is about 130 yards away from us at that point. And you're on the foot on the ground. On the foot on the ground, uh, sort of hunkered up a couple against a couple dead trees. And I switched to the cow call, and I just started doing a couple mews so he could sort of hone in on us. And uh, sure enough, he started making his way, and he, he picked his way on a route of higher marsh. And... God, it's always exciting to see them come and getting closer and closer. And those antlers just sometimes it's all you can see is the antlers sticking above the vegetation, splashing through the water. Yeah, you hear hear him coming, and, and boy, he keeps coming. He's looking in our direction, and he keeps coming. And I've had plenty of sort of aborted approaches to get, not get too excited until they hit that sort of fifty yard line, and then all of a sudden it starts feeling real, you know. And sure enough, he keeps coming in and coming in. He finally enters into the little island of trees we're at, and he's amidst all the, the dead timber, probably 30, 40 yards away from us. And then he begins this game of sort of zigzagging, and I'm pinned up against these dead trees, and I, <clears throat> depending on which way he goes, I might have to like get my arrow up and around one of the, the trunks that I'm standing way too close to. And he, you know, first he zigs left, then he zigs right, and back and forth and finally he decides he's going to commit to going into the sort of interior of this little island of trees and it just got way too brushy but i think at one point he was he was within my comfort zone 20 yards or so i would have flung an arrow if he'd stepped clear for sure but uh it just wasn't meant to be and he got in there he knew there was supposed to be a deer there he's looking around and when they get there that once they make their mind up that, okay, there's not a deer here, there's no amount of call that's going to bring them back, they just sort of turn around and go, and, and he marched off back to Eagle Nest Island, and and he was out of our lives. Yeah, I called the one that came to 43 yards and then stood there waving his nose in the air, yeah. being like, I hear her, but she's just not here. Yeah. Because if she was here, I would smell her. I feel like decoys would work casually. Well oh, I think, I think they would. But I'm just too lazy to like lug something around out there and place it and whatnot. But. Calling with a decoy, I think, would be like really deadly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I got that. Yeah, I got a strong yes on that for you'd be, sure. You'd be laying by some rolls. Yeah, it's a small decoy to hide behind, though. <laughs> Especially for me. I can't believe no one. Someone probably is onto that, but I'm surprised no one's onto that. If they're not, yeah, there's. I actually have a decoy. It's you know made of this plastic corrugated cardboard kind of stuff. It's cut out of a spike, and it folds up into three pieces. But it's just another thing to carry out there, and I haven't yeah. been real motivated to to really test it out. But I probably should try it one of these times. Well, we got a friend who thinks they're immoral. Oh yeah, decoys in general, not duck decoys, turkey decoys. What did he say? Turkey. He says he doesn't want to go to hell, so he won't use one. Yeah. <laughs> Well, a friend of mine's wife thinks that it's immoral to use trickery to lure an animal into range. And people have been doing that since the <laughs> dawn of time. Trickery. <laughs> so calling would be out. Yeah. yeah. The only archery opportunity I had 
um, was the very first morning. We were sitting over uh, acorns on the ground. We were in, uh, what type of tree were we in? Were we in an oak tree, Yanni? I think so. I think you were, yeah. Um, and Giannis and I are both looking one direction. And then Giannis goes, oh, cow, other side of the tree. Uh, two o'clock, there's doe. Turn around and kill it. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, and I turn around and this doe that was just like shockingly small to me. And it was still a little bit of gray light in my memory anyway. Um, and she's severely quartered away kind of through this gap. And she was just there for a blink of an eye and, and gone. And that was the only, did you get your bow back? No, not even close. No, I had an arrow knocked just cause I had started out that way. Um, but that was it. However, if, you know, it's a new, totally new species, you had a leg up on me because you'd been here once before. But had I, like, I feel if I had the knowledge just that I gained in this one week at the beginning of the week, the archery game would have been a different story. You feel like it would have been helpful. Knowing yep. what you now know. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, but I have absolutely no regrets from this trip. This was phenomenal. I had like similar, my previous experience hunting here was very similar. I did two days, the last two days of early archery, kind of got my feet wet, and then um, came in with a muzzleloader, and it just, there's a certain cockiness to having that muzzleloader. Tell me about it. <laughs> it's, just, <laughs> it's just different, man. It is, for sure. It's just different. You made it more difficult with your muzzleloader. Because you didn't bring a scope? That was, yeah, that was not, uh, believe me, if I, it, going forward. I mean, it didn't end up hurting you at all. I would I would have a, um, I'm not sure if I'd have a scope, but I would definitely have different iron sights. And I would have my own muzzleloader that I have got myself more familiar with more accustomed to that purely for uh shot placement yeah and confidence yeah yeah man opening day of muzzleloader season i'm right back in the same tree where i'd miss my shot you mean steve's island i'm in steve's island steve's tree on steve's island Rennell, steve's tree on Rennell island and Early morning, I let a hind walk through because I was hoping there'd be a stag behind her. There's no stag behind her. And then a while later, here comes a hind greasing across from the eagle's nest, headed straight toward me. She gets like 50 yards in front of me. I yell, hey, and get her. Just lands right in the trail, stone dead. Then sit there, sing along and wait now and see if a stag shows up. And about eight, nine minutes later, sure enough, here comes one nose to the ground following her down. He gets to the same spot. I say, hey, and he lands four feet off her tail, still in the trail. And there's two of them. Then you need to get out of my seat. It's amazing. <laughs> there's a certain cockiness that comes with a muscle. I will <laughs> tell you, st- standing or sitting in, the, in that tripod blind, yeah. like totally man-made blind sticking out of the marsh, 
there was a certain feeling of like laziness to it. No, maybe you not lazy. Because I could see with it my binoculars. It was just like I couldn't. There was no. Like, I just had this, like, almost a feeling of, like, sitting on the toilet. Like, just was like, nah. <laughs> and Giannis and I were definitely, like, crammed in there, you know. But then getting in the climbing stand or just being in any of the other stands, I felt like I was way more of an active participant. Yeah, you looked, like, compromised up in that thing. Yeah, and I was just like, man, I feel, I think I told you, I was like, man, I feel like a sore dick sticking out here. No, I know like, what you're talking about. Yeah. yeah. That spoke to me. Sticking out like a sword. If you had done the work of probably play, the hard work it took to place that stand, you'd yes. have a different feeling yeah. about it. Yeah, you show up and climb up in some other dude's tripod stand. Right. Yeah. It's the only thing out there. You know, it's, it's a good it's, view out there, though. It's a heck of a view, yeah. No, it's a gorgeous spot. Great, great way to learn about the critter. Yes, oh, it's just the observation, so yeah. man. And we haven't even talked about Oh. The wide array of vocalizations. Um, unbelievable. Because the first that I sat out, because I had been sitting in the woods where you can't see anything beyond archery range. Like, you're in the thickets, you know? And you're not seeing all the stuff that doesn't matter. Anything you see, like, matters right now, right? Because they're close when you're in the woods or, in, you know, in the brush. But then you get out in the open marsh, and you've seen a lot of stuff that doesn't really matter with your bow. matters with your muzzleloader. But you get to just observe their movements. And some of the things that struck me most is one, how aggressive the stags are to the hinds. Mm -hmm. Like mean, gang piling them. Oh, yeah, Three of them on one. Mm -hmm. Like, because the ratios are like, there's a really high stag to hind ratio. And they get on some of them and just chase them, chase them, chase mm -hmm. them. Three of them on them. Relentless, yeah. And how much they mess with each other. They're like little bullies, man. They're like the dudes and like little guys, like the dudes in high school that were on the wrestling team, man. So they remind me of like always like messing with each other and fighting and punching each other and zapping each other's nuts and stuff. It's just like, <laughs> you know, like those kind of dudes, like high school wrestler guys, yeah. man. Oh, when we opened them up, there's a lot of sores on those. Yeah, Steve Stag had some slightly infected wounds. Same with the know. wrestling guys in high school. Yep. They're, they're, <laughs> they're always just like just in each other's <laughs> business and headlocking each other and giving each other noogies and just whatever, man. Just like messing with each other, pulling each other's underwear. <laughs> just like, you know? Ringworm and cauliflower ear and rug burn. Yeah, just that's what these little stags remind me of, man, because they're like they're just these little... I think that's pretty appropriate. Little shitting things funny. that are just so like jacked up and like mean to the ladies and mean to each other. <laughs> it's funny. It's total anthropomorphism, but oh yeah, I have no problem shooting a stag. Like, <laughs> bastards deserve this. <laughs> yeah, in like, some way. And I feel a little guilty every time I shoot a hind. I mean, you know, if I'm really looking for the meat, I'll take one. But uh, nine times out of ten, I'll just let them walk. They just look so peaceful out there. And yes, you know, I know. And I, like, and I had some. Yeah. I had a female come through uh, you know a hind come through with a fawn what do you say for fawn you, do you say fawn when you're talking about stags and hinds yeah we usually word? do i'm not sure there's, there's a more appropriate uh that's in line with stag and hind but uh we just say fawn either way i had one of those i was sitting there with my bow and had some of those come through close and um like on a white tails i wouldn't hesitate to break up the mm -hmm. right to the pairing and i'd be like oh you know it's like it's proven that if you shoot the doe, you know the, the fawn's weaned; it's old enough to survive, or vice versa, right? And there's like management objectives and right. whatever, all that garbage. 
doesn't bother me. Watching the hind and her fawn come across the marsh, at first I was like, ooh, man, she's going to come right through. And after a couple minutes, I'm like, yeah, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> I was going to hope that a stag comes. A lot of them get a pass from me because Yeah, I'm going to hope thing. that a stag comes. And those fawns are small. They are. I've seen them come through the check station at Blackwater, and they'll dress out, some of them, 13, 15 pounds. Wow. And at that point, it's like, is it worth killing an animal for the five pounds of edible meat you might Man. get off of it? You know? like that thing up in the roaster oven? I don't know. You kill ducks <laughs> all the heart time and only give you Yeah, but that's yeah. like the biggest they get, you know. No, I'm with you. I didn't want to do it. Once I saw yeah. it, I didn't want to do it. When, or, I had, or I definitely like had like real reservations. Did you know Rocket Money can cancel a subscription for you? They'll even alert you when there's been an increase in a subscription price and negotiate rates for you. I can see my subscriptions in one place, and if I see something I don't want, Rocket Money can help me cancel it with just a few taps. You wouldn't believe how many people are paying for subscriptions they don't use. This happened to me. It's annoying. This helps you find it out and get rid of it. Well, Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions and monitors your spending and helps lower your bills so you can grow your savings. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. That's rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. Rocketmoney.com slash me eater rain or shine every day is a great day for fishing right and you probably got rain gear but you shouldn't overlook sunny day gear columbia pfg solar stream elite hoodie has you covered on the sunniest day man i was just in hawaii and i had my columbia pfg solar stream elite hoodie with me and here's the deal we're in and out of the water all the time getting in to go spear fishing getting out taking the kids to the beach i'm not gonna mess around all day putting sunscreen on then having to get washed off I just run a hoodie. I mean, who wouldn't trade a sunburn for a trophy fish? But why do it if you don't have to, especially when this Solar Stream Elite hoodie is built with broad-spectrum UV protection? We're talking UPF 50, and it has airflow, so you don't overheat. And what's the alternative? Putting down the rod every half hour so you can slather on some sunscreen. Seems like an easy choice to me. So if you're going to be spending long days out on the water, and I sincerely hope that you will be, head on over to Columbia.com slash PFG and shop all of their performance fishing gear. Man, I just got a new truck. Before I even drove my new truck anywhere, I wasn't going to drive it anywhere until I put a deck system in it. That's how, that's what a believer I am in decked. I always thought they were a great deal, but now they're even better because they have redesigned their drawer system in storage cases from the ground up. It's like, I didn't know there was a problem with them. I don't know, they seem great to me. Just an improvement on perfection. The new system made in the USA... Gives you 10 to 30% bigger drawers to fit more gear. It's lockable and secure, right? Weatherproof storage for all your gear. You build it right into your truck bed. You still have a truck bed you can put stuff on. The top deck of the new system has eight D-ring tie-downs integrated into the steel. So you have really burly anchor points to hook stuff down on your bed. So you got to slam on the brakes or take off real fast. Nothing shifts. And like I said, they're, they're, they're D-rings that lay real flat. Like You still slide stuff right across the deck it doesn't catch on the d-rings the d-rings are built in 
The drawer system fits any truck or van on the road in the USA from the last 20 plus years. Decked is a game changer. There's no more like leaving stuff at home that you wish you had with you. The stuff I want in my truck is in my truck, out of the way and secure. Go to deck.com slash meat eater to receive free shipping. When they're bugling and they rip three in a row, like, do you feel that's a more, that's a stag that's like really worked up as opposed to one that just rings off one randomly? 90% of them are three packs. Or that was I, my estimation. Single, they do some singles. Yeah, I think ninety percent yeah. are three packs or more. Maybe. I don't know. You know, and it, I think all the stags bugle to an extent. It's not just the dominant ones. Yeah, I always like envisioned. You know, oh, it's a big six. If it's really ripping out bugles, it's got to be a big mature stag. And I had one uh, that I called in. I actually got it on on video on my phone. I killed a. a a nice one the night before and i didn't want to like i was hunting on the the refuge and the previous one had been on public state land so separate bag limits within applied so i could have taken this one but it was not real big it was a spike you know tall spike and i just didn't want to use my blackwater tag on a young stag so i just grabbed the phone and filmed him to keep the bow from leaping into my hand and uh he comes all the way across the marsh i'd call him in and he got within 20 yards of my stand and, and was just milling around. And all of a sudden, he ripped out a bugle that was like... Blood curdling. Yeah, and I had it all on video. I've been trying to catch that on either audio or video for the years I've been hunting him. I always just get like the last two or one and a half of that three-pack. But this guy just went off, and he sounded as big and bad as any stag I've ever heard. And, you know, he was a fairly young, mm-hmm. young stag. So I think they all call like that. But uh, you can't judge a stag by his bugle. And they make a ear sound. Yeah, it starts as a real high-pitched kind of And it turns into this sort of groany, moaning kind of sound. The Kiwis call it the, the, the hee-haw, uh, which if you kind of stretch that out, it sounds kind of like that. And uh, that seems to be... I usually, when I see that happening or imagine it happening, uh, it seems like it's a doe who's tending a stag. Stag is tending a doe. Tending a doe, yeah. Um, It's like, I don't know, a frustration sort of sound. Um, And then you'll hear also just a groan. Right, right. And then you'll sometimes hear him just growl, like, and, and that's, you when, they lay their, that's close. when they lay their antlers on their back. Yeah. Right? And that's usually when they're encountering another stag and tell them, like, get out, buddy. This is my spot. We watched one come up to two that were fighting. And I couldn't hear them because too far away, but I was watching them through my knocks. Two were fighting, and he was doing that posture where he tips his head back and lays his antlers across his back and kind of waves his head, mm-hmm. which is kind of a crazy-looking right. movement. Would you clarify the antler configuration and what our, a six-point is? Our back sweeping. They're like little elk antlers, kind yeah, of. Yeah, miniature elk antlers. They're like more similar to elk antlers. They got the forward brow tines that hook. Mm-hmm. And then your typical one your typical one has forward brow tines that hook and then like straight back main beams that will have a fork on them. Right. So that if he's like doing his normal, normal walking posture, 
like head forward, normal walking posture. His antlers are kind of like his main beams are kind of like aimed back at almost like a 45 degree angle. When yeah, he's walking probably. along. Yeah, like brushed back. And then you'll see some that have, you know, they'll have like short brows and a little slight split. And as they get nicer, they get like a hooked brow right. tie and a deep fork. Mm-hmm. But then you can also get them like you killed a seven point. Yeah, very rarely you'll get one that either on one or both sides it'll have a little sticker point off the back of the main beam, and it'll be a seven or eight point. Those are rarely more than an inch or so long, but uh, I would say maybe one or two eight-pointers get killed a year, uh, if that. It's funny how much you see those antlers coming through the brush. Oh, man, they stick out. (laughs) Like... It's like two chopsticks coming through, mm-hmm. the, coming through the brush. Yeah, because you know? the total height is only, uh, what, 12 inches average? Big ones, 12 to 14, yeah. 15 inches. True you know, monster trophies might get 16 inches tall. I mean, and, of course, you'll hear guys, oh, I saw one like 22 inches. Like, yeah, right. <laughs> Show me that stag and I'll believe it. But otherwise, um, you know, a lot of the spikes that – the sort of bigger spikes will be nine, ten inch spikes. But God, they look big when you see them out there, you know. Oh, they look like the Hartford Buck, man, or yeah. whatever that thing. It's like when you see one out in the open marsh where there's nothing next to it to compare it to, right? It looks like a man eater. Because uh-huh. they're so like like I said, like high school wrestlers, man. It's like next skit. It seems like half their body We're weight get is a in bunch their neck. Wrestlers, right, man? Dude, some of my dearest friends are high school wrestlers. Craig Christensen, John Murray, great yeah. wrestler friends too. Malcolm. Yeah, man, all kinds of. They're bugs. dark. They're pretty easy to spot on the marsh, which I realized because last year I hunted the uh, woods a lot more, and they blend in on that that pine mm-hmm. dump. The yeah, dark ones. They stand out the, the marsh, color man. difference between the stags. The, and the stags hind. are chocolate, dark chocolate. They look black out. And there. the hinds got that reddish color, but they all—it's the only deer that keeps its spots its whole life, and they're faint. But right down either side of their either side of their spine. And then a little bit on their rump, they keep their spots. They get pretty faint, but it's cool. Really cool. Pretty. Stags will sort of disappear when they're really running because they're rolling around and making wallows, and their pelt gets all nasty, dirty. It'll stain them up. Yeah, and so you can't really see the spots on some of the stags. Uh, but later in the season, when they've stopped running and they're not making the wallows as much, their spots will start to be a little more apparent as well. And man, do those things get a ruddy smell. The meat's great. They don't get like a ruddy taste. No. We last night took a um we last night took a back ham off a stag and just I cut a bunch of holes in it and filled it full of garlic and put a rub on it and we just cooked the thing in a trag or pellet grill for a few hours. It's just like no at all taste of that. But man, you smell that little bugger. And it smells like Rank. if you pissed in a jar and capped that jar up nice and tight and put it out in the sun for a few days. With a little <laughs> mud in there. And then poured that piss on you. That's what it smells like. Like, after carrying them over my shoulders out of the marsh, it smelled like I had pissed myself. Yeah, you forgot to put your rain jacket on. Like I'd on. pissed myself a couple days ago. <laughs> Yeah, I was kind of regretting giving you a ride back to the house. My, my <laughs> no, it was bad, man. <laughs> it was bad. It was real bad. You guys were talking about how old these these deer get. That's Tell, pretty crazy. Yeah. What's the deal? What's the age class? Steve can speak to it. He knows them. 
Yeah, they've done a lot of tagging studies over the years in, in the Blackwater region. And they've uh, documented hinds over 20 years old, you know, hinds that were uh, tagged as adults and recovered, you know, a decade or more later. Are the stags, is it kind of like a typical, you know, like a six, seven-year-old stag's ancient, like they don't last as long? Uh, I think certainly their lifespan is shorter, but because I of don't... Hunt, because of hunting? Because of hunting and because the just the Hard aggression that they show towards each other. Oh, yeah, know. I should mention the one I killed last year had just lost his eye. I'm not mm-hmm. talking like a little bit. His eyeball was completely Shriveled demolished up. and punctured recently by an antler tine. Yeah. And then tell the story about the one that the guy that you killed that was missing a tine. Yeah, so I, I killed that, that seven point that I killed. Uh, I noticed was missing probably close to an inch, inch and a half of the tip of one antler and I, uh, shortly after i killed that one one of my friends on the club uh, uh killed a real nice mature six-pointer and when he took it to the taxidermist they were caping it out and they found a piece of bone about an inch and a half long antler stuck in its neck like right behind the skull and and uh so he kept it and brought it over and we matched it up and it was a perfect match to the <laughs> antlers that I, from the one I'd shot. Did you glue it back on there? No, he kept it. <laughs> he kept it. He kept it. Yeah. What? This is trophy. Dirty dog. Uh, <laughs> really? He didn't hey, give it to you? Yeah. Did you ask what's him for it? What's his name? No. Let's call him out. No, I'm not going to call Come him out. He's a big man. fan, actually. You know He'll who you are. Dude. You owe that. <laughs> that is Steve Kendrod's antler point, man. Really? It you should wear that, as a, you should wear that as a little necklace, man. Or place it someplace independently. Or make your wife you need a, a clubhouse. Your wife wear two earrings or one earring? Um, two. Generally two. Too bad because she's like a one. She ran one. You can make her a sweet earring. I made my wife turkey spur earrings that she wears. Oh yeah, yeah. Huh? You know, like when you set that little mount that you set a crystal in. Like people who are into crystals, uh-huh. they'll have like a little mount, and you like put a crystal up in there and pinch the mount. Yeah. I had a jeweler take those type of mounts. And I sawed off turkey spurs, big, nice, pointy turkey spurs. Sawed them off and had them set the spurs in those mounts. Cool. And now and then, when the occasion's right, she will wear her turkey spur earrings. Interesting. Which I like a whole bunch. (laughs) Um, No one, the only people that know what that is are people who you'd figure would know what that is. You know? Yeah. It's an insider thing. Right. Something else just popped in my head. I can't think of what I was going to mention. We covered the vocalizations, which are many. Yeah, I'd like to give a shout-out to the guy that makes that bugle call because it's... uh, He can't sell many. Yeah, I've got mixed feelings on helping him market them because I don't want everyone and their brother to have one of these things. But Yeah, you don't want to turn into one of those calls where everybody has the same call and it stops working. The hoochie mama of Sika calls. Yeah, it is hands down the best... (laughs) Yeah, just I mean, a little it, reminder. It, it, it catches that sort of low growly sound that it starts and ends with, and it's like it's the, real subtle. Yeah, it's real subtle, but to me, it it's part of the authenticity of the call. And you know, I've listened to many of your podcasts where you talk about turkeys and do game animals really need it to sound perfect to to trigger the sort of response you're looking for? And probably not, but for me. Uh, just the confidence of coming as close to the real thing as I can is is part of what I personally need to feel comfortable calling. To feel comfortable blowing and, it. Yeah. yeah, and this call, I think, just nails it. Um, it's called the Nordic Sika, and it's made by a guy I met out of Sweden. 
Oh, he's got a whole line of uh, predator calls and stuff like that. So it uh, definitely, uh, I don't go in the woods in October without it around my neck. With all your Nordic sea yeah. How When does the rut start and, and, and like how long does it last? Is it basically the whole month of October or? I would say, you know, if I were to pick two weeks to hunt out of the entire season, it would be starting with Columbus Day for the next two weeks. Uh, the sort of middle two weeks, second and third weeks of October probably the, will encompass the peak of the rut. But they'll start late September, early October, uh, but they don't really get cranked up until about Columbus Day, it seems. And it's over by Halloween. Yeah, generally. You'll get little pulses of activity, and I've I've seen stags chasing hinds in November and, and even into December. But uh, Do you use calls in those later seasons? I do. They don't seem to be as responsive to them, though, especially the stag calls. The cow calls, you know, you, you can stop one with it. Or yeah. Can you tell the story about the flood and the seeking box that were tied together? Yeah. Back in 2002, we had Hurricane Isabel came through, and there was a tremendous storm surge that, that flooded out most of southern Dorchester County. And it pushed a bunch of flotsam, just debris, all kinds of stuff, way up into the woods and marshes and whatnot. And I'd taken a friend of mine on this property that I lived on in southern Dorchester, in Crapo, Maryland. Um, and... I had to go, I had to leave him on his own for a couple hours midday. And when I came back, he said, Hey, man, I found two dead stags that someone tied together. <laughs> I was like, what? <laughs> so that's weird. And he said, Show me. So we went and we walked over to where he'd found them. And indeed, it was two real nice, mature six point stags that had gotten tangled up in a length of crab buoy line. Uh, probably, I don't know, if you stretch it all out, it's probably 50 or 60 feet of, of oh, a bunch line. Of line. Yeah, and, it, and the one stag that had, you know, and when they wallow and they spar and, you know, make little rubs on trees, they just whip their heads all around. And he must have looped this rope up somehow, and then the weight of the buoy, it just kind of kept swinging around, and it just perfect, like figure eight around. Mm-hmm. His, so this big wad of rope hanging around, his antlers at the base of it and then a long loop had formed at one point and he he got in a tussle with this other stag and that loop got around the other stag's antler and twisted up to the point where it, it couldn't free itself and you could see it it also like tangled up in greenbrier and all kinds of stuff it'd been a big struggle and both also, stags, you feel they were still laying where they had met their death Oh yeah, they were no one had up. no one had touched them. I, I mean, there was they were this, still like tied up with the brush and stuff. Yeah, yeah. The, yeah I had to cut away all the green briar that there was twisted up in the uh, rope and everything. So, yeah, it was completely just a freak of nature kind of thing. The only thing humans had to do with it was the fact that we were the originator of the rope and and buoy. So this this one stag had a crab buoy hanging right on his forehead, <laughs> and uh, and another dead stag with about a three foot loop. And you and you kept those skulls and keep oh, yeah. them tied up. Yeah, I I boiled them out, cleaned them up just as they were. I haven't uh, separated them or anything. Wow! And when you get your antler point back from that dude, <laughs> you can make just a little display, man, of like the buoy one, his body yeah. that he's tied up to, the little point. Yeah, the other stag. It'll be like a nice little. You'll be able to have people come over, and they'll you'll catch them looking yeah. at that little yeah. display, and you'll be like, see that stag wars. Yep, yeah. see that. Let me tell you. Right, but right now, 
Can't tell that story. Nope. Because that guy stole your thing. <laughs> yeah, I don't begrudge him. It was in his deer, so. No, I think if the police, if the police came out, the police would say, it's the blonde that doesn't belong to you. As long as the other guy who's stuck in his deer, that's what the police would say. Yeah. Now, if you call the ethicist, there you go. You might get a different answer. Yeah, but where do you stand on folks that they shoot a bull or a buck and it's missing, you know, a prominent tine? Okay. And then they have, well, the taxidermist recreated that for me. I'm like, that's not right. Oh, I think that that is. That's not the same thing at all. How no. is it not the same thing? It's not because well, it's, 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 it's just not the same. It's just not the same thing. We're not asking him to put it back on his buck and then display it as in like here is my grand seven point. We're asking him to display it because it's an interesting story, like next to the buck. Because you'd be able to say, "See that, right?" I would if it was mine. I believe that I would tie it off with a little piece yeah. of string hanging there, and people would be like, "What happened here?" And he'd be like, "Well, funny you ask." And then I'd tell him the story. Yeah, but the buddy is a telling the story. same story though. No, no one's going to ask him why he's got a little hunk of antler. What if it's hanging from a string off of his buck? He, People are like, why would you oh, hang this chunk of antler off that buck? Yeah. He's like, well, let me tell you. See that? And my good friend Steve Kendrott, I screwed That's him true. over. And if you had a regular buck and you hung off a little chunk of antler off him and people were analyzing him, they couldn't see a broken tine, they might be like, hey, what gives over here on the display shelf? At which point you'd be able to say, well, let me tell you. Yeah, and he, you'd have to I tell him the whole story, buddy. Ryan. Yeah, and then at the end, they'd be like, dude, you should give him that antler you? point yeah. back. <laughs> you want to give him that antler point, bro? And then maybe he's got a follow-up story about Steve. I heard, like story, <laughs> I heard a story about some guys. This is out at the uh, – this is some dudes who were hunting out at that ranch we've talked about before called the High Lonesome. Yeah. Which is like a controversial ranch because of some public land issues. But uh, – they had had a client out who was pursuing this, this bull elk that had this giant club formation, okay? The bull's carrying the club when the client hits it with an arrow. By the time they blood trail it and recover it, the club's not there anymore. And this guy, I guess, was very, very interested in them finding that club. Could never find it. I wonder if he had one built. That's another thing, man. I was just at the Wild Sheep Foundation, and they got the world, like there's a new world record bighorn. The, I, in my opinion, shouldn't count. I had a hard time with the, that. A, kid, a little kid in Montana just shot a giant that they say might be a new world record. Really? I think so. Breaks. Yeah. Can you check that? In 680? Oh, shouldn't say 680. People are going to find out that that's a famous bighorn unit. That's a joke. All the big big horns come out of 680. Unless it was like a youth world record, but a, a young there's, there's kid. There's such a thing as a I youth world record? I don't know. But a kid in Montana just shot one that I think might be a new world record. Really? Yeah, but I'm interested in what it? you have to say here. It wasn't my kid, was it? No. On oh, the, what I'm going to say. Okay. Yeah. So, two problems. There's the problem I meant to address, but I'm going to address a problem that comes up in the, in the addressing of that problem. The problem I want to address was the replica. Okay? Which is fine. But here's the main thing. There's a new world record bighorn because there's there's this big there's this big ass lake flathead lake it's twenty it's a natural lake twenty miles long some miles wide big ass lake out in the middle of this big lake is a thing called Wild Horse Island and at one point in time it was supposed to be a utopia like a guy owned Wild Horse Island and he was going to have like an economist 
a sociologist. Like he's going to bring out all these experts and create this utopia where they would solve all of the world's problems on this little island. As utopias are wont to do, it failed and just became like regular people's have places out there. But there's also some public property out there and some old orchards and all this kind of stuff. And at some point in time, a bunch of bighorns got put out there. And it's been pretty valuable over the years because they have used bighorns from Wild Horse Island to help do repopulations of, of other areas to bring in genetic diversity so you'd grab one from Bighorn. And at times, they've taken Bighorns from other locations and brought them out and put them on Wild Horse Island to help the genetic diversity on Wild Horse Island. So it's just like important little part of Bighornness. But there's no predation to speak of. There's absolutely no hunting. And it's kind of like, because it's out on an island that kind of functions, in my mind, as a sort of zoo. Yeah. I've been out there, and you can pretty much walk up and, and grab the Bighorns. Right, they're kind of like they're tame. Yeah, because there's a lot of recreation on that island. There's oh, yeah. a lot of hikers, and yeah, they look like, I remember standing out there on Wild Horse Island one time, and I and I was counting how many times one was going to hit a ponderosa pine. I remember I think he hit it 72 times in a row or something. Bam, bam, bam! Unbelievable! My God, yeah, and he hit it that many times in a row. And you could tell he did it a lot because he kind of like caused this big indent on this Ponderosa. Yeah, he was getting his hundred in for the day. So yeah, he's in the Hundo Club. So it sounds kind of like bow hunting for Sika Deer. Yeah, <laughs> banging your head against something. <laughs> so uh, one of these dies, and it's the new world record. And it feels like like it. It feels to me like saying the new world record came out of the Cincinnati Zoo. Yeah, it's an odd way to track record book animals. Like, well, you guys know that the argument is that. Those records are set up for the animal, right? Yeah, it's not I know, I know, but I don't like it. I don't like it. I hope the kid, I hope this kid has a new world record from a like native habitat, right? It's like native habitat, wild, living out there, getting chewed on by wild animals. I just hope, I hope, I hope this rumor is correct. But so, but you know, but again, you're, you're looking at like what can happen, like what is the greatest size one of these can achieve, and I accept that it's the biggest one, but it's, a, it's a bummer to me that it came from like a little zoo island. Yeah, and that, you know, I'm being a little bit, I'm trivializing it and being a little bit reductive, but that's just my initial take on it. Right, because you're right, it is important because that is a herd of bighorns that hasn't been subjected to any disease. Yeah. So what were you talking about replicas as far? as Oh that? well, I walk in and there it is. And holy shit, is that thing big, man? It's like, you know, I've looked at, like, I'm not like a bighorn expert, but I've looked at a fair number of bighorns over the years. This thing is like, you look at it, and you're like, my God, I have never seen anything like that. It is just gargantuan. But, and it's a replica, not the same body, and they cast those horns. And that's like a big thing in the sheep world. Like our friend Jay, who's a sheep guide, when he gets a client on a big ram, he he guides like governor's auction, governor's tag type dudes. When they get a big ram, he'll get a replica made to have a replica of the horns. Like they cast the horns and make a replica. It's a common thing for the client to do as a part of the, the tip or the thank you yeah. for the guide. He's already got $300,000 into it. So, Did you find anything, Giannis? Yeah, so it was actually killed uh, last fall, wow. October 20, 2017. It's still not, uh, it still has to go through some more scoring, you know, by BNC. You know, it has to go through a couple panels to be certified or not. But, anyways, it's uh, eight inches shy of that big one from. Um, oh, eight inches? You're not going to make that up. 
No, you're not going to make that up. But what it is is that it's a um, it ties the uh, world record uh, hunter sh- killed uh, sheep. There you go. It's like a 12 year old kid, right? Young uh, kid. Twenty. Oh no, not even a kid. Uh, I don't know, Come on, Brody. I just heard it in hey, passing. You know what? Man. To your credit, you did ask him to look it up. Yeah. As my kids say, type it up. Fact checking. Trust but verify. Boys. It's time to do some closing statements. I'm sorry, but it's coming to that time. We have to leave in an hour for the airport. Uh, I don't have any. I'm good. No, I got one. My boy the other day was looking at, speaking of Packers, my boy, I just heard about this, um, was looking at a horse. He says, man, that horse has a poop that just won't come out. And uh, someone pointed out to him that that's, in fact, not a poop that won't come out. This is reproductive organ. And he was saying, I'm glad I don't need to carry one around like that. I'm glad I got a small one. <laughs> so it's good to have that perspective. Just be thankful for what you got. That's my closing thought. Be thankful for what you got, ladies and gentlemen. Two, one, whatever. Lauren? Thanks again for having me. I didn't have a lot of contribution there, but uh, it sure was fun coming out here and shooting sick of deer, not only from the tree stand, but to get to experience it from the ground and it's awesome. You know what I think your concluding thought should be? You should say hi to the dude in New Zealand. Yeah, hey to Ben Brown. Uh, thanks for being a fan and listening. And there that's pretty cool that he uh, heard us all the way from Montana. Yep. Hi, country cameraman, Lauren. <laughs> hey, Ben. Um, in the spirit of Steve's apology for the the Washington elk hunt, I'd, I'd issue like a semi fair warning, like. <laughs> You, no, you, like if you're thinking about coming out here to hunt these things, which you should do, um, just know that it's like not a slam dunk. Like it's going to be way different, a way different hunt than what I think a lot of people are expecting. They're going to be hard to find and like hard to scout. And you know, yeah, it's kind of you probably have to come do, but you might need to come do it a few times yeah. to get it dialed. Yeah, fully agree. Since we've kind of talked about where they live, if you're going to come here. Just be prepared. Yeah, it's not like showing up somewhere to go squirrel hunting yeah. or something. You yeah. have to like figure it out a little bit. But I want to come and do it for sure. You're fired up? Yeah, man. They're cool. Oh, they're real so cool. cool. <laughs> I wish they were native, man. I'm a, I'm yeah, a we got to have native. that discussion. Like, we were talk- Cal and I were talking about that a little bit. Like, when does, is, is there a point at which something becomes uh, native? honorary native? Yeah. yeah. Honorary native. If, if there is, I feel that like they've achieved it. Cause like I said, they've woven themselves into the cultural fabric of the East right. shore. Yeah. With humans, all you have to do is be born there. I know. Well, not even, I mean, you could be, you could be born there, but, um, naturalized. Yeah. Naturalized. That's right. Good stuff, Brody. All right. Ladies and gentlemen, Brody Henderson. Take it easy. <laughs> Steven I'm just grateful for the opportunity to work with you guys this week you know it was it was exciting to see you know, how the sausage is made so to speak for a, a mediator episode it you was, ever read uh, Upton Sinclair's The Jungle no <laughs> about how the sausage is made no. My I think God, I was supposed to one of the books I skipped in high school that I was supposed to read <laughs> or don't remember at least but uh no, it was it was great to work with you guys, and it was frankly it was it was fun to see a couple real experienced uh, consummate hunters uh, put back on the early stages of the learning curve. You know, the enthusiasm I saw in you guys coming back, seeing something new, and trying to suss out how these animals work and what makes them tick, and 
how to be successful. It was cool for me to see that because I think a lot of folks assume that you guys are so good at what you do that it becomes sort of blasé after a while. And, and I got to see firsthand that sort of enthusiasm and appreciation for the resource and respect for the animals that, uh, that you guys have. And I think that's what makes meat eater so special, uh, is it really shines through in the, the products, the podcast, the, the show that you do. And, you know, working with the guys behind the scene, my shadow for the week here, Lauren was, was a lot of fun. Um, I was not successful in, in taking a deer, but I well, yeah, but here's the thing, left. though you 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 put yourself in the position where you're sucking high and tit the whole time, giving us the cherry spots. Well, yeah. there's a little bit of that. Yeah, I wanted. Yeah, to you're like sure you let us you let time. us go to all the hot spots, and you go up and just figure something out to not get in our way. Yeah, if yeah, I was well. you, <laughs> I'd been like, boys, I've just found it. they really like it right here by the truck. I'll go back into the marsh. <laughs> Don't forget the bug spray. No, I definitely wanted to see you be successful. It, uh, and I think you got some great footage and uh, be looking forward to whenever it comes out and airs. And then my final, final concluder is to my friend, uh, Johan, who has the other piece of the antler. You don't need to send it back to me, buddy. <laughs> I, you've got my blessing to keep it. Um, but I know he's a pretty avid listener, so... Fact, you'll hear about it. That's he'll probably awesome. be mad that I didn't contact him and tell him to come down and meet you while you're here. So, <laughs> but, uh, uh, Cal, thanks a ton. Absolutely, we've been talking about this for a long, long yeah. time, and and I gotta say, it just exceeded expectations. How'd you guys meet anyway? I was working literally. I was three months in, three four months into working at First Light, 2012, doing sales, marketing, customer service little bit of product um and uh steve had gotten a hold of me um and we were truthfully i called the bitch about ripping my knobs yeah and he did me right and you guys struck up a little friendship yeah that's yeah. cute Absolutely. and he was like yeah seek deer and a longbow and bet you don't even know what that is and so and then the more i got into it i was like oh my god you can call them like you can you know, you can use calls, which is something I, I love. Um, doesn't matter if it's ducks or elk or whatever, um, turkeys, and just something that I hadn't heard of. Tons of public ground. They taste really good, um, and it just and I had just it, as we've discussed, I had just finished uh, Chesapeake, Mitchner's Chesapeake, like the year before. Yeah, and uh, I feel like he does a great job in this area because the story of the Chesapeake Bay is just this constant change because of, well now like saltwater encroachment. Um, and you know, it's, it's, um, erosion, right? Yeah. And I think that's one of the coolest things that I kind of came to. And this really is my concluder is, um, you have so many things that have changed in this area and gone away all these islands that have fallen in into the water and eroded just away got subsumed by water yeah yeah they didn't fall into the water i want to make that clarify that i'm gonna disagree <laughs> um they blew away right steve what's that the islands washed away just got subsumed washed. they got covered by yeah. water at some point uh, they yeah, were well, the eroded here, yeah eroded the trees Anyway. Houses, um, too? Go on, Cal. Yeah. I'm following you. 
Um, and then you have this species, although it is an invasive species, which I'm totally on the other side of on every other argument, that is now like finding new life and growth in an area where a lot of things are going away. In a compromised ecosystem. Yeah, which I was just blown away by. And, man, it, it seems like a really good thing. And I'm really interested to see what biologists kind of pop out after after uh, listening to this yeah. as to what the other side is, because I know there's another side out there. There's they tel- have to be competing against something. There's a television show my kids were watching, which I, which I despise, called Animal Mechanicals. It's where all it's like this I view it as this, this dystopian universe where it's a post wildlife world where the animals are mechanical. Oh all the all the trees and plants, everything's artificial and mechanical. But it's meant to be cool and they do cool things. But when you watch it, it's like this that yeah, it's a dystopian post wildlife world. And so as you have this ecosystem here where there's it's the dominant Plants, so non-native grass, an invasive non-native grass, trees that were planted, rising ocean levels that are encroaching on and destroying vegetation, a non-native deer that is thriving in this environment. It winds up being like on the surface, you'd come and be like, wow, this is amazing. But on the other hand, you look and it's like emblematic of a lot of problems that we have and a lot of wildlife problems that we have. Yeah, and it's going to be... Yeah, I'm sure is right now a major, major conversation. And you've, the homogenizing effect of non-native wildlife, non-native flora and fauna. And it's got a culture around it and an economy around it. And yeah, I mean, it's, it's fascinating stuff. We're adaptive in our tastes. You got to wonder how many whitetails we would have seen in there in a week if there were no Sika deer there. More than we did. Way more than we did. Not that I'm anti. You know. Right. I'm just... Posing a question, yeah. Janice? Janice Poodless? Um, Great time this week. Thanks, Steve, again. Appreciate Mm -hmm. you hosting us. We stay in Steve's... uh, You want me to plug your uh, Airbnb? Sure. Come down here to Church Creek and uh, stay in Steve's spot. What? It's a sweet little spot, man. It's like like 10 minutes minutes down. We're going to want to come down, and Steve's going to be like, oh, I can't because I'm all booked up. He's going to be like, who's you just this let me know when you're coming. I'll block it off. I'm rolling my eyes now. If you can't hear me, my eyes are rolling in my head. Um, I was going to give you some tips. Yeah, no, no, I was no, no, give no. You plug, a high- plug your Airbnb, Steve. No, I, I make sure to protect some days for, for when I'm planning a hunt. And if I know you guys are coming, they'll be there's a long unavailable. Season. Yeah, but there's a long season. It opens up September 6th. It runs through the end of uh, January. And, you know, we've got this house that I used to live here Monday through Friday um, when I worked on the Nutria project. And now that I'm over on the western shore and one of those well, the evil people, one of those people right? Uh, now that you're a chicken necker, that's as right. they say. I, uh, my wife and I decided to put the house up on Airbnb after we were unsuccessful in selling it. And uh, lo and behold, it's been pretty popular through the summer months um we try to keep the price reasonable and and for a group of guys that come in it's much cheaper than a hotel and you've got all the amenities at home and and uh you know it's it doesn't get the use during the hunting season that it does uh you know it starts to taper off in september october november december january but uh 
did have an interesting case where uh, we got an inquiry about a booking from someone in upstate New York it turned out to live in the community right next to where I grew up. And uh, they come down in January for seven to they booked for a 10-day hunt this year coming up. So, But, yeah, it's available. It's called the Church Creek Getaway if you go on uh, Airbnb and look at, at uh, Cambridge, Maryland area. Oh, man. Give Church away, Creek Getaway. Give away too much information, man. Yeah, but just like that elk. Next thing we're going to be talking about where to buy them crab balls. <laughs> yeah. I was going to give you a hot tip, though, on, uh, on so that, to get yourself prepared for the moment of truth with your bow is a way to practice for that. Go ahead. Uh, a couple of things I've done is you can uh, enter tournaments, and if you're in a competition sort of a setting, there's you know st- stress or, that you induce you know that setting induces on you. Yeah, I understand, but I don't a, think that's a good idea. <laughs> I just think it's the same thing. But go ahead. No, it's not the same thing at, at all. But you get us. There's a stress that you, when you're at home just flinging arrows that you can't replicate, right? And when if you, you got a bunch of mugs, being like nah, like that kind of stuff. Yeah, that helps yeah. a little bit. What you can do at home with a bunch of mugs is put some uh, wagers on the line, put some money on the line. But, uh, yeah, but that, that's not. The, yeah, I appreciate the effort, man, but I don't think this is like this is the same thing. You don't have to tell me if I'm right or wrong. I'm giving you a hot tip as a way to get better at your shooting in that moment of truth to sort of deal with stress. If, you, if there's a large sum of money, you are going to force yourself to focus and to block out everything else. And you're not going to allow yourself to go from, oh, I got this thing, to blah, because you're like, no, there's $100 sitting there. Riding on and, I, and I need to take a second longer. Exhale and squeeze. Yeah, that's true. Because even when we have rock throwing contests, I pay a lot more attention once we got money on a rock throwing contest. <laughs> totally. <laughs> no, I, I can see it, but it's still, I, yeah, it's just really hard to replicate, man. <laughs> I, yeah, there's no way to replicate it. It's just things that we can do to, uh, you know. It's better than nothing. Better than nothing. Better than nothing. Okay, I think that's everything. Good night, folks. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. Simply pour a can in your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam 
to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. Pick up a can of Seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit SeafoamWorks.com to learn more.